We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm Alan Williams. Of course, I'm here with James DiRogilio, and we're back with what's become an annual tradition, the May mailbag. So just thanks in it already for all the questions you guys sent in. A ton of good ones. We're going to have fun with this one, James. Yeah, tons of fun. It's great to be back with you. We are in studio here at the comfortable confines of the GNFP. We are not on site. We are not in the facility, <laughs> but uh, we hope that you guys got just as much joy and excitement out of that opener as we did, kind of just springing it upon you with no notice and no warning. We like to give you surprises, so we hope you enjoyed that. We're going to open the show talking about that interview, how we did it, what went down, what we could and couldn't ask, and how we felt about it and how we feel about it now upon reflecting. But first, as always, if you like the content on this show, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel, where you can watch film reviews, become a patron on Patreon, where you can drop us donos, and as always, a shout out to our lovely team, B-Red and Carly the Commissioner. They'll be ramping up here shortly as the season is quickly approaching us here. Alan, if you are not in one of our threads, the GNFP Sammy or GNFP Java, go ahead and join. And quick order of business here, Alan. We had no donos in between our last podcast with Napier and here, so that did not move the needle, apparently, for the dono. We will also be on Venmo this season, Whoa. so should you need anything... Should you not like Patreon? If you like Venmo, we're on Venmo. Uh, that's fine. But either way, no donos to report here. All good. It is the off season. And if you're new, we I feel like we need to make this disclaimer. This should be like a while. tagged post, basically. Yeah. Go ahead, Alan. Uh, that, yes, uh, if you cringe when we say dono, it took me about two years to stop cringing because it's a inside joke. It's a We realize it's stupid and silly, but it's become a, become part of the show. So, yes, we're... We're not serious, but we're serious, but we're not serious about it, I guess. Yeah, it's always important to remember that you should allow some level of like absurdity into the things you do in life because yeah, that's just kind of what it is. And dono is that's that's our thing. Love it or hate it, it's here to stay. It's a tradition now. Uh, hopefully you you enjoy it and laugh with it as much as we do. Still sitting on the throne, James Ridge. We have still not heard from James Ridge. So James Ridge, if you're out there still, if you're alive, if you're still there. 
doing the things you were doing before. If you're not, reach out to us. Let us know where you are. I think Pat Forty used to do like uh, put out an APB for people, uh, old players and stuff that they hadn't heard from. Oh, yeah. track down. So this is an APB for James Ridge. Get in touch with us. Let us know you're good and that you are still, in fact, ruling uh, the GNFP well and judiciously. Alan, hit up our legends here. I will. Barry Jenkins, Guy Tumbleson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, The Big Homie, Lil Peyton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marshallisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Emery, Craig Scrato, and... A little fanfare. Do, 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 do. We got three new legends here who have been, I guess, we should have been including them for a little bit. James is a couple know, of months tick. here, according yeah. to the records department, went down to the archives, found <laughs> out good. that we had missed them. Uh, and Alan, please yes. give them their love. Extra love for you yes. here because this is overdue. Three new illustrious members, Alan Horn, Sydney Singleton, and Kristen Moody. Welcome to legend status. And special shout out to Kristen because she was the one that wrote to me and said, hey, I still love the show. I love you guys. But I feel like I think I should be a legend. I'm not trying to get any like, <laughs> love or shine for myself. And I immediately did the little threshold search and thought, oh, it's not only you, Kristen. It's also Sydney and Alan. So thank you. And thank you to all of you who have obviously supported the show. Uh, and thank thanks to all of you who listen and don't support the show. We're just glad here to be with you. Uh, spending quality time here two episodes out yeah. and, and you know maybe eight or nine days here in may a first ever occurrence for the pod and we have so many good questions so thanks to all of you for writing in and uh giving us just a lot of good stuff to talk about for here sure. in the off season never a shortage of things to discuss yeah and to alan sydney and kristen just rest assured everyone in the accounting department was fired so we have a whole new staff coming in you know, yeah we, can't, we, don't, we can't live with these kind of mistakes. we don't mess around here errors on the gnfp are, are, there was are hundreds taken of people very fired. seriously yeah our big humongous <laughs> palatial accounting department has now been reconvened. to uh to zero, to as zero. We reconvene. <laughs> <laughs> all right alan i'm gonna hop on the first question okay here. this is well i just want to say this is from the long loyal listener and friend jeffrey hoy so it's good to start off with him. It is indeed. And in fact, several of you wrote questions about this. So we're going to give you all shine. You're going to get, you know, either grouped together where, hey, five of you asked the same question or something like it. But we're going to start off here with Jeffrey. Um, and he essentially asked us if we could follow up more on the interview, how we felt about Billy Napier's answers. Did we feel encouraged or were we left wishing that he had essentially given us more and in Jeffrey's opinion, like a lot of you who posted to us, of course, Napier seemed to be as honest as he could be, but also sounded perhaps like he was keeping his cards close to the vest. So, Alan, let's start here with you. How did you feel post-conversation? And perhaps also peel back the curtain and kind of let our listeners know what the interview stipulations were sure. time-wise, because that was the major hurdle. It wasn't what we could or couldn't ask. It was the time that we had. Right. So we only had... 30 minutes total with Billy. A few minutes got tacked on there to the end. Um, and he keeps quite a full docket. And we were in there ready to go. And we did the best we could. Of course, you chat a few minutes. But we wanted to get almost everything we talked about on you know, on the podcast recording it. So, yeah. I mean, there, were, there was no stipulations about what we could or couldn't ask. Uh, more just like, what do we think would be the best use of that very limited scope? And knowing this is our first time interviewing and talking to him, that... 
you know, we could fire questions at him that he probably wouldn't answer. And then maybe we could never have a chance to talk to him again. But yeah, wanted to set the stage for, Hey, maybe if we can do another one where he, he, uh, buys in a little bit more and we can talk to him a little while longer. And you could tell, I mean, we talked about this afterward that, you know, you can see him start to open up a little bit and relax a little bit and, uh, start to enjoy it, I think. And yeah, so I think the whole experience was really cool. Yeah, Billy, if you're listening, thanks for for doing the segment. We Indeed. we enjoyed it for sure. Uh, and then and then what Alan said is is correct there. I think we went in with a list of questions, and and the questions did include spoiler alert the things that all of you wanted to hear and the things I wanted to ask. How do you feel about the two wide receiver sets, and why do you do it? Right? Why are you the OC and other things? Of course, we have an OC in Rob Sale, and what you know what's the strategy behind that? Why do you think it gives you a benefit? Um, quick game questions, anything that would be more technical football wise, we wanted to talk about, but we knew going into it much like how we'd interview Scott Strickland or anyone else that they don't know us. Like you guys know us. You've been a long-term listener. They often a coach, they being the, they are going to assume that anyone that meets with them is there for their own agenda. And of course, when we were, when we were discussing this idea with the athletic department, it was that we want to have an open canvas to discuss strategy. And we are not trying to get a soundbite. We're not the media. We're not trying to sell papers or get clicks. We want to have an honest and authentic discussion that we think will benefit the head coach. It'll benefit Billy because if Billy can talk about his thoughts and experiences, you, the listeners, who our listeners tend to be obviously not only hungry for, for learning more about football, but are also very educated and uh, plugged into the program. And so if you get a chance to kind of share your thoughts as a thought leader directly to the people that I think could benefit, of course, the coach. And our job is to ask good questions that allow him to explore his own thoughts and strategies. And so we had all that stuff teed up. But when you had 21 or so, 22 actual minutes of interview time, we just didn't get there. Uh, however, I think all of you probably noticed, as Alan mentioned on the show, halfway through, he started to, I think, realize that we were not there as a typical media company. We were not trying to get something from him. We were not trying to talk about like a gotcha question. So our hope obviously is in the future we'll have more time and we can dive into the to the more micro strategic or tactical questions that all of us would love to hear his answers on. I would love to hear his philosophies on these things. So I think that's the structure part we were at. Uh, and that sets the stage, of course, for the rest of these questions that we have on the Billy Napier interview, Alan. Well, first, even Jeffrey asked, like, you know, want us to share a little bit behind the scenes. How was, what was the facility like? Or, you know, just to describe that experience. Uh, probably most of you haven't been in the facility. I hadn't been in the facility since it was finished. It is a monumental edifice. It is enormous. I knew that, but they spared no expense in making this thing look awesome. Uh, they've, of course, thought of everything in there. And, uh, yeah, they've been in it for a year. And it looks like they're really making use of it well. And, you know, Billy's office is nice. It's not – it's a good coach's office. You know, no, nothing like that you would think, oh, this is wild or extravagant. But uh, it's a bustling place, a lot of activity, even in the off season. And, uh, yeah, if you have a chance to take a tour of it, I would recommend doing it because it's a cool thing. Yeah, definitely. Very cool thing. Good vibes. I think Florida obviously is no longer behind in the arms race. Unfortunately, as we've discussed, the arms race has moved perhaps from facilities to paychecks of sorts, however you want to look at that term with NIL. So it is different, but certainly not behind. And also while there, we made some jokes about how I've I've had the opportunity to tour other facilities 
Uh, if you look at world soccer, you know, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man City, Man United, these are some of the highest payroll professional sports in the world. And if you go to their facilities, they're nothing like what most of these colleges have. Uh, they're not nearly as nice. And that just kind of shows you the bizarre recruiting glitzy world we live in. Um, so you feel that when you're there too, but it's really well done. I think I felt even better about it now that it's lived in. It's got like a soul and a heartbeat. It's got some life in there. Uh, so certainly if you're an athlete, it's a it's a really cool thing to have. From the locker rooms to the treatment facilities, it's all very efficient, very well laid out um, to everything. Strength training right to the indoor practice bubble. Uh, really, really nice. So all in all, great experience to be in there, Alan. Now let's talk a little bit about what the interview perhaps could have been because we've got some questions on this one. Uh, and of course, I think both and I, let's start here. How did you feel about how it went? So given the fact we had the time constraints, we didn't get to maybe all the questions we wanted to get to. How did you feel about the interview itself? Yeah, I mean, I was really appreciative that he took the time to do it and answered as much as he did. I think, yeah, I mean, Jeffrey said it. I think there was a good mix of he was trying to be as honest as he could while still feeling out the process. And, you know, he's a football coach. He's naturally probably a little reclusive when it comes to answering things. There's the kind of secretive nature of coaching for better or for worse. And I thought the interview for what we could do in that time frame, I really, I really felt like we did what we wanted to do and I'm thankful that we got a chance to do it. Yeah. I think it was a great opener that laid the foundation for hopefully future discussions. I think it was a good trust builder. I think that, you know, hopefully Billy feels like we were true to what we said we were. It's like, we love strategy analytics. We're not here to tell you you're right, wrong, or indifferent. We really want to know what is your plan? Why do you do this? Why is this happening? And why do you like it? And share it. That's it. You know, give it to us. So I think um, we're hopefully laying the groundwork to have more of those conversations, which again, I think personally benefit head coaches to do that talk directly to their stakeholders and skip the media talk to the media after games like you normally do but in reality you're going to have a far different platform if you could spend one hour talking about why you chose your offense why you chose your defense why you do these things you might win us over or we might think hey maybe there's a chance to explore that right so i think a lot of thought leaders do this naturally i think it'd be wise uh, for billy to do so and obviously again it's really important to note and a lot of you noted this most head coaches are not even remotely touching anything like what billy just touched so even though he was guarded at times and opened up more at others, most coaches are not even remotely tapping into that dance floor. So that credit should be given there to Florida's athletic department and obviously I think to Billy for doing it. So I think both Alan and I, of course, think it was a good start. Do we get to answer all the questions we wanted? No. Do we get to ask them all? No. But again, you got to start somewhere building these relationships. We take our relationships very seriously and we also take our objectivity and analysis and opinions seriously, meaning we never try to allow our relationship with the athletic department or with Scott Strickland, or if we had a strong relationship with Billy to influence what we say, because our job here for you is to give you what we think is the analytical third party objective analysis, good, bad, or indifferent. And that's not going to change, but obviously you do have to let someone buy into the fact like, Oh, okay. That's really what they're about. They're kind of strategy purists. So I thought that was great. All right. Alan, what were your feelings essentially about Billy now as a tactician and strategist, given that we did just spend a talk. This comes from Matthew Walton, Justin Wood, typical Gator and Graham Chancy, um, and also, you know, David Moore or Monroe, sorry, David Monroe. So everyone kind of asked a similar question there in one way or the other, but like, does this, uh, 
give you any insight into who he is as a tactician or strategist? You know, I think it just colored in around the edges a little bit in terms of um, him as a tactical or strategic person. He's thought deeply about every inch of what he wants to do. And obviously there's still the execution of, of whatever plan that you have in place. Uh, I came away, (laughs) I guess, understanding that he is really confident in what they're doing and that's not a show and not that he's arrogant by any means, but Hey, this plan, I'm confident it's going to work. And, you know, I I think his, what he would say, if I'm paraphrasing him, you know, they got that a few better bounces or things have gone differently. They would have a much better outcome even with the way that they approached last season. And, you know, we've talked about they could have been more tactical in trying to win some of those games or maybe hewing a little closer to like what the players might need from them in, in the short term rather than like some of the long-term results. And I, you know, tried to get them to address that in one of the questions, but uh, that, yeah, they're committed to what they're doing and they think it's going to win out in the end. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice that's a nice takeaway for sure. And we've known and we've talked about this. He seems like a very process oriented guy. He has a plan. He really believes and he has reasons for why he thinks things didn't work. I thought one thing that stuck out is you had asked him, Alan, was there anything you would change after year one? And I'm sure there are things that, again, if we were deeper in relationship with him, maybe he mentions. But you know, larger there wasn't a a, a smoking gun, mm-hmm. right? Which in his mind, I think tells you he was he feels like he's largely anticipated what this job would be like, and it hasn't worked for X Y Z reasons that are logical to him and are not deterring him from his long term vision. Um, you heard those thoughts, obviously, strategically, that maybe it takes a little longer than he thinks, even or someone else thinks. But he's very confident, as you mentioned, that that Florida will get there. With that being said, almost every coach will say that. I do think it's fair to say, Alan, that it's much easier to believe Billy Napier's conviction when you're sitting in front of him. Every coach is going to say they have a plan. They're going to get you there. Willie Taggart had a plan. He's going to get you there, right? So you can't just trust that at face value. But uh, Billy obviously believes in his plan, is enacting his plan, thinks that he's either you know on schedule or maybe slightly behind just based upon some things that have happened. But unfortunately... I am in no better position to evaluate his tactical or strategic ability when it comes to actual football stuff because we just didn't get to go there, right? We weren't able to really hit those questions. I don't have answers to questions I really want answers to yet. So I don't know, but I will say, I think a lot of you came away with this opinion. He's a very interesting character as a head coach because he's authentically humble. He does not have a larger-than-life presence at all. Very approachable, very kind. Just the feeling you get with him is genuine. He is who he is. Uh, And I think that's really unusual for a guy who's the head coach of a major SEC football program, and that's to his credit. Like That's who he is. That's his ethos. It's the kind of team he wants to build. Obviously, he's very slow speaking. He's very, uh, you know, he's not in a hurry with what he's trying to get out messaging-wise. So I think like how I feel about Billy Napier, the man running the program, is largely confirmed. We have a guy who I think loves football. I think he also loves people, his staff, right, his coaches, his players. He cares about them. He loves culture. He cares about people doing things the right way. He means that. I think for Urban Meyer, it was sort of a vessel to win. And oftentimes he didn't mean those things about character development players. I think Billy means that stuff. I think it's I think it's a part of his ethos. So I came away having left with the impression that, yeah, he's for real about that stuff. That really does matter to him a lot. 
that I learned about. But unfortunately, we're going to spend another season where I'm going to have to speculate answers to questions that I have not heard from him yet and perhaps will not hear until maybe after this season we get a chance to really dive into, hey, why do you do this? Why are you doing this? What's happening here? But we just didn't have enough from his answers, I think, to really further the needle in that regard. Yeah. So basically, a lot of people in some way or another asked the question, did your opinion of him change? I don't think so. I think he he is who he's presented himself to be, as you said. And then, you know, you can imagine being your neighbor and talking to him, taking out the trash. And he's just that, that kind of person, uh, personable. Um, so... Again, I, I don't know that his plan, his process will ultimately work, but I don't think anything that, you know, from the experience, like, oh man, I have a whole different insight into Billy Napier as a person. I think what what we've seen as Gator Nation is, is like who he is in person. Yeah, 100% agreed. And I guess the last subject on this tactical one here, we'll go with uh, regional general. And he, he says, did it alleviate any strategic concerns from the film review? Which we mentioned no, because I couldn't ask that. Uh, and then essentially, you know, great question here. Is there any recollection, a recollection of why his play calling in Tennessee was so different? No, we couldn't ask that, right? It'd be the same speculation I had last time. And then this one was a big one. I would have loved to have dove more into this. But again, we had a hard stop timer running on us, basically. We knew the exact end point of the discussion. So we kind of had to begin to tailor our end without getting into the nitty gritty. But the question here was that Coach Napier mentioned coaching uh, the system to coaching to the player's strengths and essentially that he is personnel driven, right? That nice, flexible answer, which we talked a lot about last year, where it felt like perhaps he was not personnel driven. Uh, and we'll see when we have more data on him here at UF, if he is personnel driven or he is systematic, obviously it was nice to hear him say it. And then the question that regional general has is what was our take on his approach that they are. And I just, I can't know what I know on film is it still to this day, doesn't look like it. it I wouldn't have done it. It doesn't seem like a system that was built to favor AR. It really felt like it was Billy Napier's system that was slightly different, but his systems have been different year to year, true to form. Personnel grouping wise, the percentages differ some, but it wasn't like you saw a whole lot of like, this is what we're going to do to maximize what this guy does well, which he did talk a lot about right? when it comes to this offseason is maximizing what the quarterback does well, building it in there. And perhaps in year two, which he leaned into as well, He'll do more of that because, as he mentioned, that foundational stuff is now built way more. That might give him more freedom, more time, more flexibility to install stuff that perhaps is more quarterback specific. But there's just no way that we can know. So this is, to be fair to Billy, when you're talking about leaning into more of your player strengths, we tend to focus that almost exclusively around the question of AR and what he can do and can't do. There's also 10 other guys in the field plus whoever else. So your quarterback could be capable of one thing that everybody else is not. And that's an equation that we don't have the data for. What is everyone doing in practice? Now, I think if you're just looking at just AR, which is how we kind of are thinking through this, you know, that that is a prism for this question. Certainly, it doesn't seem like this is the preferred offense, but maybe collectively we were doing what was best or close to best with an eye towards building foundational things for the future so that next year's team didn't show up and be like, okay, we're doing everything new because we're solely leaning on to what this one star player could be. And so that, again, that's a tension. We'll never know whether, how he struck that balance. We have question marks because, you know, when you have a guy taken fourth in the draft and you look at your production and your statistics and your win totals, it doesn't seem to match that. And that's unfortunate. You know, I think that's where the where people are feeling this. Okay, Daniel Cohen wants to ask, 
what are successful examples of complementary football in the past couple of years? Now, this is Billy said this phrase a ton. When he, almost in every answer, he mentioned complementary football. He did, and let's define it. What is complementary football? Uh, my answer: it's it's strictly coach speak at the NFL and college football level because it doesn't really mean anything. Here is the definition: essentially, that all three phases of your game—special teams, defense, and offense do things that help the other one. Now, this may seem obvious to you. I think the reason why coaches like to talk about it is imagine for a second that you're a freshman on UF's football team and you are only on special teams and your job is to be a gunner and you run down and, you know, half pay attention or whatever, right? You go through the motions and perhaps you allow a return that goes to the 40 or 45 yard line. You go off the field, you're on, you know, six, seven snaps a game. You might not think that matters. Yeah, whatever. We missed one one setup of our six, you know. That matters, right? That's going to essentially increase the odds the other team scores on you. It also decreases the odds you score if they punt. So that's complimentary football is you want to make sure your offense drives the ball, punts them deep if they don't score, and your defense obviously doesn't allow them to drive on you or eat up a lot of clock, and your special team doesn't you know, get field goals blocked, gets punt blocked, have bad punts, shank punts, whatever. The reason why, to me complimentary football is not important is as an analytics guy what matters to me are several stats alan that tell the story of whether you win or lose and i think it's just i would only focus my team each unit on these things so for offense obviously you want to have three main things you want to have a high points per play you want to have a high yards per play and you want to have a low turnover percentage If you have those three things, you're an extremely productive offense. And then you can tailor what your offense does situationally. So obviously, here's a nice argument. If you're a high points per play team and you're scoring in two or three plays, sometimes you got to throttle that back because you might need to recognize the previous team just had a nine-minute drive on your defense and got a field goal and you score in two plays and give them the ball back. That might actually not be best in a certain tactical game situation. So maybe you try to have a six or seven play drive, right? But largely speaking, statistically, each unit can have two or three stats like that that I would focus on. That then naturally leads to this complementary football, which again, I think is a a coaching cliche, but he's saying it because Billy Napier, perhaps more than almost anyone else, believes in the holistic nature of his football team. And that is why I think you heard him say it so often is he doesn't just want to talk about the offense or the defense or special teams. He wants to talk about every decision they make every single day at every moment. And all of that complements winning football. And you heard him lean into that. He believes that it's not just a coach speak thing for him. As for me, what are successful examples? Well, you can imagine them anytime those sort of things occurred they would be successful. If your defense is obviously turning the ball over and giving your offense favorable you know, field position, that's helpful. If your offense drives, doesn't score, but punts them deep, that's favorable. So you can imagine these situations. But again, football cliche, I'm not a huge believer in it. I would not be uttering it for me, but a lot of NFL and college coaches love it, including Bill Belichick, who's been a big complimentary football guy for a long time. I think if you pin Bill Belichick down though, it's going to come down to individual unit production and then understanding as the general he has to pull the levers correctly tactically for when to slow them down or speed them up. But the players, lastly, he doesn't want the players making that decision. He focuses them on do your job and recognize it affects everyone else's job. And that is, Alan, team sports is very important. Yeah, so this is, you know, one, do you want to have a worse offense because you have a better defense? No, you don't, 
Right. So, I mean, I think this comes from the old style. Like if you have a dominant defense, don't turn the ball over, just run the ball. You're going to win most of the time, but that actually decreases your margin of victory doing that. So that's why this idea I think seems outdated. Now, certainly if you have an awesome dominant defense, you maybe will lower your risk tolerance slightly, right? I'm not going to go for it on this fourth down and this where it's, where it's in the gray area. I'm not going to like put the pedal to the metal and try a bunch of risky stuff because that maybe actually increases more variance and I don't want that. Right. So I think certainly there's, there's wisdom, right? If you have a terrible defense, you want (laughs) to, you probably want to maximize other things offensively and special teams. So there is this idea of how do these things fit together, but to build your team, like we're going to be like, run if you have a good defense that means you run the ball i don't i don't think that's been proven out to be the best way to go so certainly there's some truth to this but i think it's as i think we're both of us so it's probably overblown a little bit all right ranis lambert says the barometer for the gators will be uga this year moving forward will a run-based basic route tree concept gator offense ever be effective against that uga defense I know Napier's offense is fine, but do you think there'll be an evolution of it a la Saban Bama? If he does not change, will his Gator coaching stint run parallel with Muschamp? There you go. Uh, I think there can you be a run-oriented team and beat Georgia? I think so. You, If you're the best at whatever you're doing, you can solve an, any kind of defense, right? But if you are basic, there's that word in there basic then probably not you can be a run-based you know like in this family like you know if we want to compare him in the largest sense to the shanahan system now again i think he he doesn't actually hew all that close to that but then yes that offense can be as good as any offense in the world right you could pick any kind of offense and be elite at it um but in our current iteration what we saw last year i don't think that's going to beat georgia very often yeah, as you're describing this, of course, if it's a basic route tree concept, but you're basically saying the offense essentially, let's call it antiquated or is not attacking in modern ways or ways that are multiple, then that's not going to work. You heard, of course, Napier say he wants to be multiple on offense. If you've read the quotes from Graham Mertz this spring, Mertz feels like he literally, Napier is a wizard. He's a tactician. He's got an answer to every problem the defense gives you, which Mertz clearly did not feel that way at Wisconsin. Um, now again, what players say about their current coaches often doesn't hold weight, but something that definitely stuck out with me and with you, Alan, post that interview was how he talked about the responsibility given to quarterbacks in the system. And you heard him talk about young quarterbacks, experienced quarterbacks, you know, what year it is. And now we're entering year two, but his system clearly is giving quarterbacks a ton of responsibility. If on every play you are coming to the line of scrimmage with two and three play calls available to you, you can audible entirely out of a run or a pass into a bubble screen or a vertical route or something else. There's complexity there. This is driving a manual F1 race car. And if you don't know how to drive very well, you're not going to drive that car fast and you're going to crash a lot, right? It doesn't necessarily seem like Billy is going to be dumbing that all the way down, maybe like a Mullen would. And there's whatever the base level is, is just not a great functioning F1 car, right? But perhaps if he does have a trigger man who's experienced, knows what he's doing, has all the tools, that's something. I think this helps partly explain, Alan, why 
in my opinion, Florida is having so much success recruiting future quarterbacks. Because if I'm a quarterback, right, which I fancy myself as one in the flag world, so that's very different, but I want all that. I want it. I'm cerebral. I want to be able to puppet those strings. I want to read what's happening on the field. I want my coach to believe in me to do that. That's exactly what I want. That's also what's going to happen in the NFL to a large degree. So that's powerful. So it's possible in the worst case scenario that Napier's offense is complicated and not effective and doesn't work well, which we've talked about that. Hey, look, maybe these route tree concepts aren't great. The route concepts aren't great. How he's attacking defenses, pre-snap, post-snap is not great. That's possible It's also possible that perhaps his offense with the right person running it, with AR, with a year more experience, with whatever the case may be, opens up and becomes something different. After all, this is only year one entering year two, but we will not know is the answer to this question. Fans love speculating. Everyone's been speculating. I'm speculating, but I think we have to give him a three-year test before we can say definitively His offense does or does not work. Here are the problems because, again, we're entering into year two. We have a brand new quarterback, different system, uh, essentially with, you know, him not being in the system. So we'll find out. But I think that was a very interesting part of the interview, the discussion of, of quarterback responsibility, inexperience, him trying to rebuild the quarterback room to where he gets guys that understand what's going on so he can, again, give them the keys to the car and they can shift and know what's going on and, and report the on-track conditions, so to speak. All right, Michael Hammer, Jack Dees, and Robbie DeCola. I'll ask a similar version. We kind of hit on this. Basically, are there questions that we didn't ask about the quick game, about route trees, about bubble screens to Henderson? Um, something that might have been disrespectful or that we don't want to ask. I, I think... Would have liked to ask about what would let him know that hiring an outside OC wouldn't be the time for that, about the two offensive line coaches and kind of the strategic choice about that. And, yeah, and some of the very X's and O's about that. So we didn't ask those things. We didn't have time to get to that and to kind of move our way towards that. So there's a long list of things that we didn't ask. Yeah, long list. And I think to Robbie's question, something that may have been disrespectful in person I believe you can ask someone almost any question about strategy and tactics in a way that is anything but disrespectful. And that's kind of our point with building a relationship is, yes, we love strategy. And yes, at times, you know, I'll have significant takes on the show that I'll I'll be the first to say could be totally wrong. I'm trying to base it on evidence and what I think might be the case. And other people might do the same thing and get a different answer. So you have to hold it loosely. But you can ask a strategy question respectfully. Because you're a student of the game, you want to learn what's happening, perhaps they're going to give you an answer that sways your opinion. So I think there's nothing we couldn't ask him that wouldn't come off as totally respectful because it's curiosity. I'm curious. I would love to hear the answers to these questions, not because I think his answers are going to leave me wanting something, but because I really want to know. I know he's thought about it a lot. I would like to hear that. I'd love to hear that. So I don't think, hopefully on this podcast, you'd ever hear us ask anyone a disrespectful question. Uh, because that question really shouldn't be asked because that you have to ask yourself, are you trying to just sort of troll someone? Are you trying to put someone in their place or, or maybe show that you have knowledge they don't have? Or are you genuinely curious about why someone does something? And I think on this podcast, all of our discussions come from genuine curiosity about the best way to do something. And I think people recognize that and they're willing to answer. All right. Gator one says, based on the current college football environment with NIL and recruiting, uh, is Napier the right coach just about five years too late? And we've covered this, yeah. Alan. But essentially, would Napier have had a better chance of success if it was 2018 instead of 2023? I think clearly. 
um, if he's you know the same age he is now and same experience level, I think he had learned a lot in the old system and everybody's having to pioneer in this new system and he's having to do it at a very high profile job at a fairly young age. So, um, yes, I think so. It doesn't mean he can't be successful, but I think he would have really moved the needle much faster five years ago. Yeah. We've said this and I definitely think that that is true. A hundred percent for sure. NIL has been a major thorn in his side and the changing of the culture because of NIL what the right. players want and care about as a, as a, a side issue has been one too. Um, and so it's going to be a grand experiment. Can a guy like Napier, an ultimate culture builder, uh, basically a younger Nick Saban, which is what he kind of fancies himself as, mixed with Dabo, can he build that kind of culture if it's starting now versus already having one established where players recognize it's their best chance to go to the NFL? Is the startup project of Florida interesting enough for people to join up on this culture startup rather than a money startup? so to speak. And we're going to find out, but I, I think, I think it's clear that he would have probably, you know, all things considered if it's the same landscape as 2018 and it's now 2023, it would have been hitting home runs already. Yeah, for sure. All right. Nuth, Knuth, Knuth could be any one of those. Let us know which one it actually is. Pros and cons, Alan, of having your head coach also be the OC. Well, you get, there's a lot of alignment between your head coach and your offensive coordinator because it's the same guy you're not going to have those pitch battles about what should we be doing and what kind of tempo should we be running. And so that, that's the easy one. I, I think we've talked about the cons that it's a lot of hats to wear. You're a CEO of a giant organization. You have a leadership over a ton of people and there's a lot going on. You got to talk to a couple of yahoos in your office, you know, on a Tuesday in May. And so, yeah, there's just a lot on your plate and we're all finite people. So I think that's where, you would see the limitations showing through. Yeah, I think to use a military example, and the military is often too rigid, but I'll give you another example here in a second with the next question. But the pros are what you said. You have more control. You have more influence, right? And I'll give you an example in the business world. That's that's Steve Jobs. He was both CEO and creator. Very unusual. He maintained his innovation tag when Apple didn't have him. They suffered when they had him. It was brilliant. There are very few examples of Steve Jobs in the real world. Steve Jobs is also not a good CEO. The reason that it worked with him as CEO was because he was such a gifted innovator that he took a company that was in that special phase where like innovation was most important, right? But if Steve Jobs is still around today and innovation begins to become harder and he's running the company, that was not his sweet spot. So there's alignments that can occur where this is really great. And we've seen this in football. Urban Meyer with the spread offense, that was a perfect marriage. He comes and takes an offense only a few guys are using He's great at installing it. He's also a great CEO in that short term. And it's like, it's like Blitzkrieg warfare, right? It's just lightning warfare with that because it's a match all at that time. But now you can't just win running the spread option. In fact, hardly anyone's running it anymore. So in that time period, it was great. Urban had to adopt. He had to um, change his philosophies, which he did, right? He changed his offense. He, he molded himself. He was a CEO. So I think obviously the risks are great. And that's what we've talked about. You don't see... A lot of head coaches in the NFL or in college that have as much responsibility as Billy does on the offensive side. But most importantly, as we've said many times before, Billy doesn't have the track record that Steve Jobs has or Lincoln Riley has or Kyle Shanahan has or Andy Reid has. He's never been known as an offensive whiz kid. Nobody ever calls him that. They generally refer to him as a great leader, as a great personnel guy, as a lot of other things. But that's why that, I think, that question 
is going to loom the largest because he seems to be adopting a moniker that other people don't put on him. He's wearing it heavily, and we're going to find out if that works or not. All right, Steve Cherms asks, again, it sounds like Billy's got a real plan and wants his own specific players that will execute it. That's for sure. He says, however, if this year's clock management and poor pass play calling turns out not to be an aberration, do you think he will have what it takes to get out of his own way and hire a high-level OC? Uh, Steve says he would hate to lose such a great recruiter and a CEO to his own ego. I'm going to let you answer this, yeah. for, uh, Alan. First, I'm going to say I think it's I think it's unwise at this stage when people talk about Billy doing this for ego because it might not be ego yet. It's going to be ego if we have another bad year offensively. Things don't fit, and he does it for year three. He stays the same. Right now, it's early enough that you can have a plan, and that's fine. You know, ego is when it's it's been clearly revealed to you that you are not good at this and it's not working and you do not change. We almost have enough data for that, but I'm going to say, I'm still going to say maybe this is not ego-driven, but it's genuine belief that this is the best way to go for the reasons that he has that we've not gotten to dive into yet. But go ahead and answer this It's not ego to to not be wishy-washy, right? You have to have a certain level of confidence in what you're doing that you're not changing every week what the infrastructure of your offense is, right? So on the scale of like wishy-washy to stubborn, I'm sure he's on the scale of stubborn on the side. I I resonate with that. That's my personality too. Um, so in terms of what will it take, I, I think if he is truly a humble person and truly a rational thinker, he will get there, right, over time. Now, might it be as fast as some people might want him to. Um, but I think if he has those traits and those are real traits, then he would be able to recognize it. And that's the key. The last sentence in your question, I think is the reveal. If he is a great CEO, he will step down from being an OC because he will recognize that is hurting the organization. The CEO's job is to steer the organization. So to finish the military example, which I kind of teased and then didn't roll with generals were always something else before. And sometimes they were gifted field leaders of men. Sometimes they were brilliant strategists. They weren't always the same thing. But once they're a general, they are not out in the field fighting anymore, even if they're one of your best fighters, because they're far more valuable dealing with strategy at a place that is safe, steering the overall narrative of the war, right? And this, again, I think is the issue with being both an OC and a head coach. They're very different jobs. They're very demanding. But on top of that, if you are the general you are best suited steering the ship, setting the course, making sure that everyone is following the plan. Every minute you spend in the field leading men into battle is a minute you don't see the big picture. And that's why if he is the CEO you want him to be, he's going to have to recognize that that's potentially hurting the organization, the operation as a whole. I thought it was also nice, Alan, that he did mention, as JT Raymond loved, he mentioned the middle eight. He did. He didn't which, call it that, but he said it. Which he didn't call it the middle eight, but it is the middle eight. And, you know, end of the half, beginning of the second half, which has been just catastrophic for Florida in a million ways. And that takes humility to say that. He mentioned the spring game, which he joked about, you yeah. know, small sample size, but also people freaking out. So there was some humility shown there. But I do think he believes that, like you said, Alan, he has enough data points. He's on the right track. This is small sample size stuff right now to him. That could be wrong. We're not stumping for him here. We're literally saying what we said at the end of year one. There's a lot of signs and a lot of questions we're going to need answers to. We're going to learn more. We don't know yet. Some are pretty troubling. We just have to wait and see still. We just can't know yet. It is still it is still too early after year one. Yeah, and I thought your analogy, the military analogy was apt. Like if you're leading a large organization, you have to figure out how do you best serve it. And that's a tough one. Okay, I'll read this next one. Rob C., 
says, when Napier spoke in Tampa, I asked him what realistic expectations are for this team this year, which he pretty much didn't answer. Oh, well. Do you think Napier ought to be specific in what fans should expect out of the team this year? We hear stories of Norvell being very candid with the boosters in his first couple of years, and that seems to have paid off for him in controlling fan expectations. I'll start here. Playing the expectation games is tricky because if you undersell it, people are going to be like, "Are do you even have ambitions to win? And if you oversell it, then that's not good either. I think this is a tight, if you start to play this game, this is a tightrope. I do think you want to talk about where you are. I don't think you want to let people in. And you also want to talk about your overall ambition that, you know, the, the place where you're headed, the vision that you're selling. Uh, I think he's done this a little bit, but I think he's also reticent to come out and say, Hey, we're, you know, we're going to be six and six. I, you know, in so many words, cause I don't think he thinks that's actually going to happen. So he's trying to tread this line here between, uh, you know, he would have to tread this line between, giving a, an accurate account of reality with also hope. Uh, that's tough to do. So I, I don't know. I don't know if he's engaging in that in that way. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's not sure how to do that. Yeah, I will say if there was an impression that I took away from the discussion with him in person, it's that he very much believes this team this year will be better. Mm-hmm. Despite what Vegas thinks, what perhaps I think, what maybe you think, what others think, he thinks they will be better. There's no doubt secondarily, and I can really speak to this one personally, and I'll answer it personally. Again, as a professional investor, I can lay out expectations with standard deviations and variance all day long. Here's what we can expect. But I do not know the one-year future. In 10 years, I can tell you, here's how much more likely this strategy will work. In one year, anything could work, and this could fail badly, even if I did everything correctly. And I think Billy has a great grasp on that. So I think if you were to ask him, what are your realistic expectations for the next 10 years at Florida? I think he would tell you candidly, Florida is going to be a national championship contender. I have no doubt. And I think he believes that. I do think it's actually wise to say that I don't know what's going to happen this year because nobody does. It's sports. You can have some amazing stuff happen in sports. Nobody saw TCU coming last year, right? And as a coach, I don't think it does him any benefits to say we're going to win nine or 10 games this year because he can't control that. That could come down to a few bounces. And it also kills your team to say we're six and six because you don't want to put a ceiling on them. So I think you have to dodge those questions. I think if you're best friends with them and you're drinking a beer on the back porch, he might tell you what he really thinks, right? But he certainly can't say that publicly. So I think in general, Norvell might be putting himself out there. He also plays in the ACC. He's got a superior roster than most of the teams he plays. He has a bigger margin for error. Maybe you go that route. But in the long run, I actually don't want my coach predicting the record each year i do want them saying what's unacceptable is six and six or seven and five or eight that's unacceptable and if i'm here long enough that's not going to happen anymore because those are the expectations Uh, but again it's really tricky i think to hang yourself on one year and chris wants to know if in the next interview with coach napier could we turn the video on please Uh, probably not i don't know if we have that kind of capability uh, so sorry about that. I mean, we could have we that could, kind of capability. In fact, they asked us if we wanted to do that, but as it stood already, you know, we have to bring our, our setup in there. We have to bring the mics, <laughs> the studio stuff, et cetera. You're, you have 30 minutes to set up in his office. So we couldn't go in early. He had a different appointment. So if you come in with film equipment, lighting, you have to test all that stuff. You have to be ready to make sure it records that 21 minute interview would have been 12 minutes. So again, in a different situation where we know we have enough time, Sure, maybe that's something that happens. But we tend not to film on this podcast. Obviously, you could argue it's silly not to do so since the whole world's on YouTube. 
because again, this is not what Alan and I do for a living. So it's limited time. So to put something else up there, edit, record, send, etc., uh, perhaps is a bridge too far. But yes, if it made sense time-wise and we had the ability to do it, perhaps we will. This was not the one. All right, let's switch topics, leave Napier here, and let's talk about quarterbacking. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we'll start with Rob C. In the Napier interview, he seemed to contrast between what he can do with an experienced QB and what they could do with Richardson last year. This is a good takeaway, Rob. I'm glad you mentioned this. We took the same thing away from this conversation as you did. Therefore, to what extent do you think the offense was limited under Richardson? Yeah, he started to reveal a little bit, and I think he then walked back a little bit, that there's some complex features of the offense in terms of, you know, maybe this is a run play, but there's an offensive feature. I hear you use the word tags. You know, there's, we have this this piece tagged on the edge of this. That if you want to get into that, you can. And I, I think this is when we criticize AR or Napier, if you're put into a complex environment as a first-year starter in your first year in that system and overall, you're going to be limited in what you do. And that's just the nature of humanity. Unless you are just an extreme outlier, there's going to be facets of running the offense that you're not going to have perfected or maybe even be good at. And so I think that's entirely possible. And I think that's actually fairly probable. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that I think a lot of fans in general underestimate how difficult it is to play quarterback and how difficult it is to play quarterback in year one of a system because it's really hard. And I'll give you an example that the Reddit threads will love to to troll on because they, they love picking on this, but uh, Danny Warfel, obviously on our flag football squad came in with a plethora of experience. He's got a statue here at Florida. He's a, known as a cerebral quarterback. He's played in a lot of systems. It did not take him a minute to learn the flag football air raid kind of offense. We run It was a different system than he had run before the entire air raid concepts. They were different than what he was used to. It was not immediate. And we'd have scrimmage games where we'd stop the scrimmage and he'd be like, Danny, what'd you see there? And to me, who's run this offense myself forever, it was extremely obvious that, hey, they're in cover two. It's exactly what you should have run, you know, hit this smash route here. But to Danny, he had to learn to see that. 
And again, he's a cerebral, smart thinking quarterback. It took him time. It took him reps. It took him getting used to what he saw, how the feel was for the offense. And that's, again, that's seven on seven. No one's hitting you. He's not dealing with the same stuff. And he's not a kid. He's a grown man with NFL experience and a guy who runs an organization for a living, right? That's true of anyone. So it's crazy to me when you hear people talk about like what they think these quarterbacks should or shouldn't be able to do. But that's why, Alan, I always go back to that's what your OC has to do for you. If you know Richardson starting his 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, and 11th games, if the offense is limited, I place that on the OC because it's going to obviously be limited by right. definition. But you have to find ways, whether that means you may just call the play for him. Right? We've seen Lane Kiffin do that all the time. A lot of those touchdown plays are Lane Kiffin literally telling him, throw the ball to this guy. He does that, especially with young guys. Right? He is dialing up Mullen. Same thing. Dialing up a play that results in a touchdown without your brain thinking about it. So that happens. In the NFL, not as much. It's much more of the cerebral game. So all that to say, the offense was absolutely limited with Richardson. And that's part of the problem that we had is I feel like it could have been better had we simplified and done things that just fit him rather than try to grow him into this, especially knowing there was a chance that he yes, would leave. Exactly. That was the other thing. So there were some things that maybe didn't match up, um, but there's no doubt. Make no bones about it. Having an experienced QB, all other things remaining equal, opens up a plethora of avenues for your offense. It doesn't mean, though, that an experienced QB like Mertz is going to be any better than Richardson was last year. Those are two different people, but absolutely. Don't sleep on how important it is for quarterbacks to have experience uh, with your style of offense. It means a lot. All right, Marshall Galb wants to know, or just, I guess, references Shane Matthew questioning AR's ability to quickly make passing decisions and has now complimented Grand Mertz's ability to make those quickly. So there's there's a distinction between quickly making decisions and understanding like what's happening pre and post snap, right? So you could know it in one instance and not know it in another instance. The experience allows you to have a broader, you know, breadth of like understanding what's happening. And then there comes into like the individual skill. Let's say, and we will never know this. Let's say AR and Graham are the same age. They've been the same system at the same time. Who's making decisions quicker after the same amount of reps and experience, because you do have some natural ability. So Mertz could be better at because he's older or maybe not. Who knows? So I think if, if he is making those decisions quickly, that's good. That bodes well for Florida. Yeah, I think that's, you know, obviously Shane Matthews has commented a lot last year on the quarterbacking and, and whatnot, and everyone has their own thoughts and opinions. Uh, having watched Mertz on film and AR on film, we've chronicled this. There's different things they do well. Uh, I think Mertz makes the automatic decisions faster. His pre-snap reads, he trusts them, but that's also what really kills him is the post-snap shifts murder him. That was one of his major problems is versus the better teams. He had a pre-snap read. They altered it at post-snap and he would make really bad decisions or miss his throws by a mile. Richardson did that too, but actually I would argue not quite as often, whether he escaped the pocket or he threw deeper or whatever, he made some bad ones, right? We've seen it versus Georgia. We've seen it versus other teams, but he also has half the experience Mertz has. So, you know, I, I, to me, this is not a slam dunk that like Mertz is going to come in and we're going to watch this guy dice up defenses with his first read decisions and quick ball delivery. But there's no doubt that when you're inexperienced, the game moves faster. And for AR, there were some plays where it was awesome. 
full field reads, beautiful pass, dime. You saw the NFL scouts talk about this. There were other plays when his mind froze because something happened and he locked up, didn't know what he was doing. So we're going to find out if Graham Mertz becomes the revelation that that perhaps, and, and Shane Matthews, I'm sure, will be commenting on this, you know, if he becomes the revelation that maybe Shane thinks he will be, a guy that can run Billy's system and get things done quicker, then, then perhaps we're going to see that this year. And we'll know that, hey, look, man, you know, AR's really hurt the offense. He just wasn't the right fit. Maybe we'll find that out. Who knows? You know, we're going we're gonna to find that out. But it seems to me, having seen them both on film, uh, that AR was raw and inexperienced, but also did things at the ceiling level that were as good as you could do. Mertz is experienced, does some really nice things. And then also for a guy who's really experienced, does some things that he should never do. So we're going to find out how that pairs up here in Billy's system. All right, Victor Redman asks, now that we have a chance to see Mertz on film, what's the single most important strategic adjustment that Napier can make to the offense in order to get the most from Mertz in this system? That's interesting. I think, again, if we're talking about taking advantage of what he does best, some of that is that pre-snap read, right? If you can get him into the right situations and he understands what's happening, then he's going to diagnose it well. Um, I structurally, I don't, I don't know. Thoughts on that? I mean, we talked about this after spring. I think one, you've got to protect the guy. True. He doesn't seem to, AR got, if you want to look up some fun stats, his pressure rate under play action was like the 10th highest in the country. Just immediate pressure. We chronicled it on the film review all the time. If that happens to Mertz, we're dead. And it's not that Mertz can't escape. It's that Anthony Richner was Houdini back there when defenses knew what was happening. And that's untenable. Uh, so one, you got to protect him. If he did have protection, he did well, exceedingly well at times as a passer. So I think that's number one. But number two, Mertz's biggest weakness, in my opinion, from film review on him is that post-snap reading. He can often be confused when teams give him a, a, con- a confirmed pre-snap read and they roll out of it into something different. He does not make good decisions. So to me, if I get into the fall camp and I'm late fall and I cannot get him to continually correctly adjust to my defense as they post-snap roll, I have to start doing things to limit the damage there. And I have to call plays that allow myself and my quarterback not to be in uncomfortable situations where essentially I'm in trouble, right? And I think that would be a big adjustment is perhaps you really want to run these concepts, but your guy just, this is his weakness, adjust around it, play to his strengths because you don't have time. This is a one-year deal to invest in that fully. You got to win games now. So I think that's that's how I'd answer that one. All right, let's take this next one. Chaplain Rob uh, wants to know, if, do we think the run game will suffer with the lack of a super mobile QB like Richardson at the helm? Uh, yes and no. Obviously, you're going to miss out on some of those mega Richardson runs, the, the threat of a, you know, kind of a read zone read or QB keeper is greatly reduced. But I don't think you have to have a mobile QB to have a excellent run game, especially if you're if you're comparing yourself to a team like the 49ers. They've been very run heavy with like Jimmy Garoppolo back there, who's like super fragile and is not would not confuse anybody with like Michael Vick. So. I don't think it has to be true. I think it just has to change. Um, I assume you agree with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a million ways you can do it. Um, one is a better offensive line. Two is is better quick game and passing to keep the defense off balance so they can't sit on your run. Uh, and three is the one that you're going to get into with the next questionnaire. Yeah, so Billy said he wants to operate in a two-tight in formation most of the time. Do you think that two-tight in formation hampers a school like Florida who, when they're truly at their best, have relied on elite speed and offense to be effective 
or is this just the offense we're going to be we're going to be now? Um, two tight ends can be fine. The Chiefs ran two tight ends, a ton of three tight ends, and were obviously super effective. Do you have the right kind of athletes to do that? Do you have the right kind of receivers? Do you have the right kind of quarterback? Um, again, I think we were stubborn about that last year, running so many tight end formations with zero tight ends. Like you don't have to put a tight end on the field. I, I think it's going to help you in your run game, but if it's so detrimental in the passing game, what are you really buying there? So I don't know. I mean, this is this has been the the thing at Florida we've talked about. Like last couple years, Florida's not had elite wide receivers in the state of Florida. They're in abundance. You should have them. You should have great receivers on your roster. I think you can have great receivers and great tight ends. And you know, those are the tight ends are harder to find. But if you can do it, I think it maximizes what you want to do offensively. So I, I don't know. I think this is a core to Billy's strategy. And I think it's going to be a long time before he moves away from it. Yeah, there's a higher ceiling, as you mentioned. Well, well done there, Alan, with the Chiefs and other NFL offenses. Bill Belichick was the first one on this with the two tight end formation running spread concepts. That is really the ceiling right now in football because tight ends are matchup nightmares. They are not matchup nightmares when your tight ends are not good. And this is the primary problem that I have. We still have a major issue with our tight end room. It's woefully inadequate for where we are. It's also hard to recruit tight ends in college football. There are not that many of them. So if your strategy relies on this, and Alan, you are in the SEC checking notes. I am. There's only so many tight ends. Do these tight ends more often wind up at places like Georgia, where they also use tight ends, although mainly to run block, or Alabama, or even LSU? How many can you get? Because is it worth it, and this is the question I think what it's getting to, to take two or three tight ends where one guy's really good and two are just guys and lose out on an elite receiver, let's say, right? No, I wouldn't say so. I'd go to more of a air raid spread attack and, and open things up, right? So you have to balance out what you can actually pull into your program it's one thing to be the Chiefs, have elite speed and tight ends. It's another thing to be Florida. Nobody tight ends, not good receivers. That's a poison pill. So I think that you'd like to have everything. I think two tight end formations are great. They work really well. Depends on how you're going to run them, how you're using your tight ends. But I think for Florida right now, it's concerning to me that we want to run a two tight end formation up to 40% of the time, which we didn't do that last year, but we want to. And we just don't have the personnel for it. Not last year and definitely not this year. And we need to get it if that's what he wants to run. Or I think we're going to play with one arm tied behind our back. All right. Brent Pope asks, how about your a look back at some of your evaluation of QBs over the years from Gators and other teams and how they pan, panned out or are panning out in the NFL? He's thinking about Mac Jones, for example. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know if he's got other people in mind. I don't, I don't know if we have a long history of evaluating QBs into the pros. Mac Jones is an interesting one. Do you have thoughts on him? Well, this is fun because we talk about like you, you. It's really hard to do, but obviously, we were not high. I was not high on Mac Jones. I felt like he was a distributor in an amazingly talented offense where he had forty-eight years to throw the ball back there. The story is not written yet on his NFL career definitively, but it doesn't no. look good. It doesn't look good. He is not doing the things that you would want an NFL quarterback to be able to do in the passing game. And, and I mentioned this. I don't know how a guy goes from what he did in college and starts throwing the ball in the NFL when the windows are infinitesimally small. That's hard. Uh, we talked a lot about some other guys we can mention. Obviously, Will Levis, who slid a lot right into the draft, but mm-hmm. his story's unwritten. We got to figure that stuff out. Um, we talked a lot about Anthony Richardson 
right? Right away, sky high. This guy could be a high, high pick when people weren't high on him. We talked about guys like Will Greer, who, hey, he's, you know, he's got a beautiful arm accuracy-wise, perhaps undersized, maybe lacks some of the zip you'd like to have. Carved out a career as a backup. I think he's still in the league as a backup somewhere, if I recall. Um, guys I missed on, you know, Jeff Driscoll, when he was at Florida, I was a big Jacoby Brissett guy, which Brissett turned out to be great. I mean, he's a viable back-end starting quarterback in the NFL. That's pretty awesome. But Driscoll has been a backup in the NFL for a long time now. A long time. And he really reinvented himself after his time at Florida. So that was a guy that I thought was never going to play quarterback in the NFL. And, you know, obviously he changed himself in the state of Louisiana with with a really good kind of senior year there. But we could go back and forth on others. But I think all in all... When evaluating quarterbacks, it's never perfect. If it was, then everybody would draft the right one every single year. I do think, though, that maybe something we try to do on this podcast is look more at everything, especially the reads ability. How well do they read the field? When I think sometimes the NFL puts that stuff aside. And that is not how I would draft. I need a quarterback that shows they can read the football field because all the best ones can do it. That's how they win. Uh, and I think you see a lot of guys, they fall in love with arm talent or with whatever, and they'll teach them how to read. And that, I think, is the hardest skill in quarterbacking. So I tend to be more biased towards that, which could have me over-evaluating guys who can do it and undervaluating others. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think all in all, we weren't huge believers in Matt Jones so far. That seems accurate. I'm a big believer in Kyle Trask. I hope he gets his chance. We're going to talk about him here in a minute. Um, and again, the NFL and college are different. It doesn't mean that Kyle's going to be good in the NFL just because he was good in college. Like they are different games entirely. Uh, but, but it is fun yeah. to evaluate quarterbacks. We love doing it. We'll keep doing it. We'll be wrong sometimes, right? Sometimes, but it's, it's a fun thing to do. So Mac Jones, I mean, I think just to be fair to him, he was playing last season with a defensive coordinator as his offensive coordinator. Yeah. It's not done yet. Story's not done. And yet. I, but I think, you know, is a reasonable swing by the Patriots. that took him at like 15 or 16 in the draft. Perfectly fine. Yeah. And I think he's probably, if he ends up, I would, I think his, he's probably like a Kirk Cousins, maybe 15th best quarterback in the league. Well, that would be amazing if he winds up being that. I, I think mean, he has that potential still. I, feel, okay. I still think yeah. that's out in front of him. I don't yeah, know if he'll unknown. get there. Correct. It's still unknown. That's what but, we're trying to say. Jury's still out on him. I don't know. The second half of that sentence is I don't know if that's what you want. So No, but that would be great for him. I mean, sure. Kirk, again, it's really important also as an evaluator to recognize that if you drafted Kirk Cousins, that's a great draft pick. It's not an all-time draft pick because you don't have a franchise guy, but hardly anyone hits the franchise guy. Most of these guys draft quarterbacks that are gone by the end of their rookie contract. Also, a third-round pick. So, So, right. So that's what I'm saying. So it's it's just one of those things where the NFL is brutal. Like you're one of the only 32 guys on the planet who has this job, and you can be trolled if you're like the number 18 guy for 10 years because you you know I mean I don't know it's crazy. Like that that guy's amazing, but obviously he's not he's not Pat Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or whatever the case may be. All right, Jimmy Galliano. Do you think Trask will make it as a starting QB in the NFL? What makes a successful NFL QB and why is it so difficult to evaluate? Oof. You know, I really do think that he will. The, the Of course, the, the knock on Trask is the arm strength. I think his arm is strong enough to play in the NFL, especially the modern NFL with the right concepts. Um, I'm fascinated to see what happens. He has a, the perfect situation. If he cannot beat out Baker Mayfield, a guy who's been in and around the league and has tried everything and just is, is who he is, then that's that's bad. Also, teams often get this stuff wrong. Uh, so he could go somewhere else and get a shot. A guy has to get a shot before you know. Trask will get a shot. I think he's too, he's too talented 
cerebrally not for someone to give him a shot. But I want to bring up an example of, of why NFL quarterbacking is so weird. There's a guy in the NFL right now who you are very familiar with, Alan, played for your Jaguars for a while, whose statistics are phenomenal. And that guy is Gardner Minshew. Oh, yeah. His numbers are outrageous if you look them up. He's got like a three-to-one touchdown interception ratio. He's played for a really bad team for a lot of that stretch. But then he came in with the Eagles this year on a dominant NFL team with a great roster and struggled mightily to put together any kind of wins. System's not right for him there. I think it was curious they took him there. So what I'm trying to say here is fit is a huge deal behind NFL quarterbacks. I think that Trask is a weaker-armed Joe Burrow, sort of also like a Gardner Minshew, but I think he might be more cerebral than both those guys by far. So does that lead to an NFL quarterback? I think it could. I think it might. I think people saw that in him. I really hope he gets his chance because this is a guy who has consistently outperformed the narrative. Consistently. And what he did at Florida, go back and watch that Joe Burrow versus Trask LSU game. It's sneakily like an all-timer with offenses that just sort of buried and not remembered because of COVID. I think the guy can get it done. So I Uh, hope he does. I love that. I really want him to. And you're right. This is his chance to do it. Otherwise, he'll probably be like a he'll get buried. Backup at best. This is the window. He's got to make it happen. Either that or get traded and make it happen. But this is a huge year for him. So I think all I mean, yeah, they have nothing invested in Baker. There's the, the runway is clear for him. Transition year, they'll, they'll, they're okay to lose with him if they proves he can do it. So yes. All right, let's go to Russell and Vicky Hill. I love this question. I'm glad I'm asking it to you. He starts <laughs> off with the fake clap snap thing. That's the start of the question. The fake clap snap thing. The QB is not actually making a clapping sound, but it sure seems like its purpose is to keep the defense off balance with the snap count. Has it ever worked once with multiple question marks behind that? Are there any stats on this? And then he wants to know that about Mertz doing it compulsively like 10 times before the snap, what is actually going on? So I, it is supposed to keep the defense off balance, but not in the way that you probably think it is. It's not like we're clapping there is some rhyme or reason to it, um, and people use it a little bit differently. But <laughs> what do you want to get into the minutia? Or what do you? Yeah, do I mean, it, well, it's the same. Okay, so obviously it's a hard count, is what it is, right? Right. Which you're already onto this, but I, I love it. Like I think you're asking the right question. I hate the clap snap. For the record, you've heard me go on mm-hmm. about it. I do not like this, despite the fact that college football has adopted it. And the fake clap snap is just, I think, a quarterback, in this case, Mertz, compulsively hard counting, which hard counting is a good idea, especially if your offense doesn't jump because it does keep the defense off balance. It is a very good idea. It's why great NFL quarterbacks have a great hard count. They really sell when they're going to snap the ball. Um, but I just I just love your disdain for this because I feel the same way and it's kind of absurd. But that is the idea is the clapping motion if you're on defense, you can imagine, even if I don't clap, you see the motion and you're you're like triggering yourself to go, to go, to go, to go. If I do that six times, you're priming yourself a lot before the snap actually occurs. And that in theory does help, but it does not help if you're getting even one or two false starts a game from it. It's negating the benefit. So there is that cost benefit there. So how does offensive line know to actually snap it? I think it was part of this question. Well, that's the key. So the fake, so clearly the audible snap is the key. That's why it's hard and it's why I hate it. Because yep. theoretically, coaches say you can hear the clap through any stadium noise, which I think is also asinine. And I've heard coaches talk about this. Like, oh, it's really weird. You can. I mean, it doesn't seem like it. I see a lot of teams struggle. But if I'm going to clap, the snap count might be two or three or four claps. Typically, it wouldn't be four. It's too many. Typically, it's two, maybe three. 
And so I can fake clap all I want. You don't hear any noise. So the offensive line is going to hear that noise two, three times. So they hear the first clap, second clap, third clap. But therein lies the problem. If your left tackle, Allen, doesn't hear the first clap, he's not going when the rest of the offensive line goes and he's late. And you can, I mean, it just, to me, there's better ways to do yep. this, but it's here to stay until someone changes so it. So get ready for a lot of clapping. So prepare for a lot of fake clapping and clapping. All right. Let's jump over to talk about a little bit of the defense and some of the other roster. David Biddle wants to know now that we've had a time to digest spring practice, although I don't know if we had digested it all that much um, as for not being there. What are your thoughts now on DC Armstrong? That sounds like his name on our defensive coordinator. Armstrong. <laughs> DC Armstrong. I like uh, and can he resurrect the defense? Um, also wants to know the linebackers have been an issue for years. Do you see personnel and coaching improvement coming this year? Um, I'll start with this one. I do think he can. I think you can get a lot more out of this, potentially. Obviously, there's a lot of room. There's a big ceiling on that, that you can get way more than what was gotten out of the previous unit. Um, I think the linebackers are going to be an issue again this year. I don't, I think you see them recruiting, right? So this, you know, two of our top players next year are linebackers. There's another one, I think, in the pipeline. But they obviously, they see it. Um, they brought in dudes, they brought in like three or four dudes from the transfer portal. But I don't know if those guys are going to move the needle. You really, you just have to hope that Shamar James is going to make a super leap and one of the other guys who are talented maybe makes another leap and one of these other guys that they brought in the portal can be serviceable. But that feels like a tenuous proposal. Yeah, linebackers, they are going to be an issue this year for sure. Hopefully... This is the last year where they're an issue with no hope. There's still going to be an issue the following year. Probably. But at least you're investing in a guy who's not going to be an issue the year after that. So we've been talking about how it's sort of a four-year build at this point in time. Realistically, if you're going to believe in Napier just because of what's happening with recruiting and where these guys will be. And right now we're just plugging holes in the ship a largely sinking ship, and that's going to be a problem. So I would not expect the linebacking core to be a plus group in the SEC. And then, David, your question about uh, Coach Armstrong, I don't know who that is. I know who Coach Ham is. Uh, and Victor Victor Redmond, same thing. He says Coach Ham. So I know who that is, so I'll address that one. Victor wanted to know, can the defense turn it around? Same question David had. And, uh, oh, man, I mean, look. I couldn't be more hopeful after the spring game. It is a small sample size on, but we chronicled it. We talked about it. Yeah. There was some stuff that that defense was doing that we talked about in depth, and, and it was beautiful. So I am hopeful is the right word. We need to see what's happening. But again, I'm going to keep falling back on this. Nick Saban is not always right with who he hires as staffers. He's not. No one is. His hit rate, though, is really high on a lot of these tacticians and he hired the youngest guy he's ever had and put him in charge of his prolific linebacking core this year. And I think we already saw dividends from the first daggone game. And again, I am like sky high on coach ham. I mean, that's probably the guy I like the most on the staff and he's had a one spring game debut. I could change my mind entirely, but yeah, sure. I'm full of hope right now right. and excitement. There's this one play where, you know, I think it's, uh, I might be getting his right now, right name wrong. Jaden Robinson, who's our freshman linebacker, the only linebacker we took. He like peels off into the flat and picks off a pass. I mean, this guy's been in the system for weeks and he's got him doing something that the other guys never did. So that was hopeful. That was fun to see. Now, again, we're, we're like, this is this is like AR playing like six snaps in the Oklahoma game. 
I'm like, man, I don't know. That was fun. Just there's a wide open future for that. So I think that's that's where the hope's coming in. Yeah, 100%. But either way, AR did become a top five pick. So there you go. Let's go, Coach Ham. All right, CJ Black, how do you feel about the quality depth along both lines of scrimmage this year? Uh, if you're asking if there's quality depth, uh, the answer is maybe. I think that there's an opportunity for the defensive line to be nasty. There's also a big hole at that outside linebacker position behind Powell, Ryland, Ryland, Powell. There's not a lot of dudes and there's a, the depth includes a lot of freshmen. We took a ton of defensive linemen. So how many of those are you expecting to pan out? I, I, the offensive line, similarly, I don't know even who the starters are going to be. So I don't know if there's quality depth there, but there's also not a certainty that there won't be depth. So I think there's a little hope on both of those things, those fronts, but I would not feel good about either one being very deep defensive tackle has some guys there that if enough of them pan out, that could be fun. And I don't know the the defensive line could be really great. And also if it gets hit by injuries, it could be totally screwed. Yeah. I think we're, we're not there yet. Obviously mm-hmm. I think we're resembling an average sec team with more risk than reward for this season. And I think as far as the overall roster goes, because the second question is with more quick twitch, receive, quick twitch receivers in the roster compared to last year, do we open the passing game up more? I think in general, if Billy were sitting with us right now and he would answer this honestly, he would say that the roster is maybe halfway there, which is far from where we need to be. But it is better. I think half the roster he probably feels good about. For receivers, we're still not there. Right. Those guys are freshmen. Um, and right. And they can contribute. We've seen freshmen contribute, obviously. It can be done. They they need to, I think, for Florida to have some success. I don't think those two route combos are going anywhere. That is a mainstay feature of his championship teams at Louisiana, of teams that upset uh non sunbelt non sunbelt, you know, opponents. I really want to talk about that with him for obvious reasons, uh, but I don't think those are going anywhere. And in fact, you do need quick guys to run those route combos. That's optimally what you want to have. So I would still expect to see those combos in there. We can only hope that they actually work this year. All right. I think uh, this next question starts to pivot us more towards recruiting and talent acquisition, which is what this next section is about. Why don't you go ahead and take this one this is brian horsham a big part of spurger and meyer's success was fully utilizing the speed available in the state and the southeast region billy's first class seemed to usher a return at wide receiver specifically to this however how does he sell future guys on what appears to be a run oriented offense so i think you can sell guys on a lot of different things right that it doesn't have to be pure production it could be the, t- the way you want to use them specifically, the type of program that you're building. Not everyone is just interested in pure stats. But as we talked about with Louisiana, the guys, they maybe weren't hauling in the number of catches, but their yardage was big. So if you're selling them on, you're going to be making big plays down the field. That can be as attractive as, hey, you're going to have 10 catches a game for 80 yards. And... So I think you can sell different things. But if your passing numbers are woeful after year two or three, that's going to be harder and harder. Well, I think the simple answer to this question is take a look at Alabama's run under Nick Saban early on when they were pulling in Hall of Fame receivers. Totally. 
Uh, and I think your point's well taken, Alan. If you're a receiver nowadays, you're obsessed with going to the NFL. And even though somebody could tell you, well, you realize each year there's only going to be, you know, 15 kids from your class that make it into the NFL. Uh, yeah, I'm one of them. All the receivers are going to be one of them, obviously, right? But if you're looking at that and you think you're one of them, then you want to run a full route tree and you want to run vertical routes because that is what is best on film is you need to be able to catch balls downfield. You got to run that full route tree. There's no doubt that Billy Napier throws the ball vertically more than almost anyone, despite the fact that it's a run-oriented offense. Uh, and it gives you opportunities to make plays. He, in one-on-one matchups, his go-to is, is a fade route. Guys love that. NFL guys love that. So I think that's what you do. I think largely, though, it's wise to view Florida as a startup, much like what Spurrier did. So the the sales process for Spurrier and Meyer were different. For Spurrier, it's a startup. Hey, we're, we're nobody. We're Florida. We're nobody. But let me tell you what we can be. We're going to beat these teams in the SEC with our offensive strategy. They've got big linebackers that are slow. We're going to run a passing attack. We're going to attack them. Receivers eat that up. That's great. At that point in time, people weren't doing that. Meyer comes in. Hey, look, we're going we're gonna to harness and unleash the power of what Spurrier built at Florida. We're a mega program. We're going to be the fastest team in America. And now Billy comes in, and he's a little different with this regard. But I think what you sell people on is we're a startup again. We're a startup. It's been 10 years since we've been anything. You don't trust us. I don't blame you. But here's what we can do. Here's how we're going to become an offense. Here's how I'm going to make you better, and here's how we're going to win. And here's the culture we're building. And I think that's what you got to check all the boxes on. They have to believe in your startup vision because you don't have a product. You don't have a product or prototype to rely on. You can't say we've sold this widget for 20 years. We're the best widget seller in the country because we're not. So it's all about vision. So if he gets the vision right, he can pull guys in. If he doesn't, of course, he's in trouble. And the second part of your question, Brian, talks about sort of the tenuous nature. Hey, are we kind of hanging on a cliff here? If this works, this could be great. But if it doesn't and you know recruits decommit and people lose the vision, it could go sideways quick. And the answer is yes. When you're a startup in the college football world where anyone can transfer and leave your operation at any time, it's far more tenuous to recruit and keep your own guys committed to the vision if you're not winning. So things I think are going to start going sideways more quickly for college football programs than that before because they take on water and some guys might just jump out and that's going to cause you know major issues. So I think for Florida, that's a risk as well because we're not Alabama or Georgia right now. We're not going to have that stability until we, again, build this startup into something that's more stable. All right, recruiting. Let's go straight into it here, Alan. BW Prisons asks, how do you square the big uptick in quarterback recruiting with the criticism of the passing offense? Napier essentially has landed three straight borderline five-star quarterbacks. Aside from our opinion here on the GNFP that the passing game is, quote, high school level at times, we've also seen NFL scouts call it archaic, as well as very complicated during the draft talk surrounding Anthony Richardson. So how do we square Billy's ability to recruit quarterbacks in a questionable offense, perhaps publicly? Yeah, this is a lot of what you just said about the kind of the vision and dream that you're selling. Also, you just put a guy to league number four after one year with him. So I think that probably does a lot for it. Um, you know, getting a guy like DJ Lagway to come from Texas, like you're obviously whatever you're selling him on vision wise is working. Right. And you know, the Rashada was in for a minute and not. So this has been compelling for people. Um, and I think this is why that year, year two class, the bump class is often so big because you, you've, you're a little bit into it. You have built more relationship, but you are still a question mark. You haven't shown that you can't do it yet. So that's the previous question, you know, Brian's asking, what if it goes bad again? Well, then things start to fall apart. People start to lose confidence because the more data you're showing them is 
there's bad results. Um, but I think it's, I think if you're a good recruiter, you're going to pull in guys like this because you're able to connect with them and sell them on what you're going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think again, it's vision is vision in general. And obviously an offense can both be very complicated and high school level concept wise. <laughs> That's an important distinction. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. I would describe Hypel's offense at Tennessee as very simple, despite the fact that it's very innovative and other coaches would call it crazy because of how far they spread you east west and what they're running with their vertical routes but it's actually very simple for the quarterback to understand that's why i like it the reads are very very simple and in college i think it's a great system in the nfl you couldn't just run that for reasons we've talked about they can man you much better the the athletic difference between your receivers and their defenders is much smaller you saw what georgia did to them right sure. so we talked about that you have to have more than just that but you also see what tennessee did out of, out of two years of development to become a juggernaut on offense right so there's ways to do it, but both those things can be true. It can be archaic, very complicated in high school level for a lot of different reasons. But ultimately, you're selling a future quarterback on the fact that here's what I do, here's how I do it. And clearly, listening to Mertz's comments, Billy has a way with reaching quarterbacks and getting them interested in his offense. Mertz thinks it's awesome. Mertz thinks you know that Napier's a tactician, thinks he's a gifted thinker when it comes to that. And all those things could be true, and that's what could lead to the complexity, overthinking, whatever the case may be. Only time will tell, but I think clearly talent is what you need in order to win. And if you get enough talent, even in a suboptimal offensive strategy, you can actually do pretty well. So all we can hope for is that we keep bringing in talent and then we'll see what happens on offense. But I think, again, it's all the vision casting, which I think Billy's doing a very good job of. And I think without NAL, he'd probably be a top two or three recruiter. And that's why it's been tough, I think, to be a Florida fan is we're probably hurt the most by the transition to NIL with Billy Napier there. All right, typical Gator uh, wants to know about Austin Simmons. So he says the relatively obvious illusions of Austin Simmons coming in this year. Okay, if you're not sure what that means, Austin Simmons is currently like a 2024 or 2020, maybe 2025. 2025 guy is going to reclassify. Yeah, to this class now, but then really sit out and then yeah, yeah. So I mean, would June first today or May 31st or whatever it is today? Yep. So that hasn't happened yet, but there have been some rumors about that. So he wants to know, how does that might impact the plan for 2024 with DJ Lagway coming as a freshman and there being that competition for the starter role with the apparent head start for Austin? I have no idea. You don't ever see a guy reclassify two years up. So I don't think that really matters. If you've pointed at DJ Lagway as your guy, you're going to bring him in regardless and guess what? If this Austin Simmons guy beats him out, that's good. You want the best guy to play. Even if DJ Lagway is great, if this other guy is better. Because you're probably going to lose one of them eventually because quarterback who lose the, the battle almost always transfer. So I think you, you just keep bringing in the best talent you can. And whether that's a, that, you know, you can have a nice clean plan, but it usually doesn't work out. So... Yeah, I think it's fine. I, it will not impact the plan for DJ Lagway because here's the reality, and we often forget this. Five, and I love stargazing. I'm all about stargazing, right? If DJ Lagway is the third best quarterback and you are in the same class as DJ Lagway and you're the 14th best quarterback, I can almost assure you that you think you're as good or better than DJ Lagway. That's what competition is like. You're just like, whatever, I'm better than this guy. So you want to go compete. Now, often you could be wrong, right? But that's how you should think as a, as a high-level quarterback. And to your point, Alan, that's what coaches should impress upon their roster. 
This is not an anointing where I say to a high school kid, you're my guy. Because you have to earn it. You have to earn that you're the guy. Right now you've earned that you could be the guy and you get a head start. You get a lead on this guy, right? You're halfway to second base and this guy's still at home plate. But if he beats you to home, he's the guy. And if you don't like that, go play somewhere else where competition doesn't reign supreme. Uh, And I think that's what's going on here. And you heard Billy talk about needing to build out that quarterback room to being four deep. I think he wants four viable quarterbacks on the roster that he can teach, learn from, and see which one is best. And famous Gator example, Brock Berlin and Rex Grossman. Brock Berlin, number one overall quarterback recruit, comes to Florida with Steve Spurrier, gets beat out by a guy no one knows of from Indiana, and Rex Grossman, whose dad sent VHS tapes to Spurrier. That happens. And look, Spurrier was right. Rex Grossman was way better than Brock Berlin ever became. You just don't know who's going to turn into what. So it's not going to affect anything other than to give them competition, which should make both of them better. All right, Kerry David, do you think the strong start to the 2024 recruiting indicates improved NIL strategy? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Obviously, it also indicates more time with the high school coaches, more time with the system being built. But it also indicates, I think, something we talked about. The stuff with Florida was so overblown. The national media writing about this, that, and the other, and Florida doesn't know what's going on. It's primarily about one guy. But mainly it was about John Ruiz. That's what was really going on, right? In this case, though, I think the answer is so far, it's too early, as you like to say, Alan. So far, it's been a very stable 2024 recruiting trip so far. So we're going to see if it remains that way. Uh, But I think the strong start does indicate that they've ironed out some of the wrinkles, some of the things that surprised them, perhaps. They have a better handle on how to leverage NIL to at least be equal to other schools. If it's not a selling point, at least it's equal. Hey, look, fine. We'll give you the same or whatever the case may be. Here we are. But yes, I think that does have something to do with it. And yeah, if you're looking for hope here, you know, Florida is, I think, number 11 in the 247 composite. But if you look at the average player rating, again, they're third behind Georgia and Alabama. And that's what you really want to look at right now because the class size is way uneven in stacking those things. So they're recruiting at a high level right now for sure. And that's one thing to hang. We saw, I saw a discussion go on social media with this where people were, again, like trolling the comparing Mullins recruiting and Napier's recruiting. And it, we should go on record again saying that Napier's recruiting is, is, is objectively better than Mullins was, despite the rankings being similar in large part because of the average quality of player and also because Mullen rarely retained the top guys that he took. Assuming Napier retains his guys, his classes will definitively have more of an impact than Mullins did. Not where they need to be yet, but it's important now, like you mentioned. The roster has, at least despite being beneath where we would want it to be, it does have more quality players per class on it than I think Mullins had. Right, and this class could still be a top five-ish class. Oh, hopefully it is. It needs to be. We're going to talk about that. It has to be, in my opinion. Exactly. So it's not... Again, you won't want to get too high on anything. I mean, Notre Dame was like number one. Yes, know, these guys. So there's the still point. a long a way time. to go. A lot of but time. if you're looking for the bright spot, that's the bright spot there. Correct. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. So Kevin Conroy Scott. Our Hollywood name. That's right. Thank you very much. Out there in London, England, getting stuff done. In an, alt- in an alternative universe where Napier does not see out his conference championship game at Louisiana, does the extra time improve his recruiting class and therefore our program? So basically he would have gotten like an extra month or so of recruiting. Would anything have changed? That's a great question. Um, possibly, but you're basically counting on those freshmen to have made a real impact last year. So I don't know if that would have meant anything, but maybe in the future it would have. Now, these are guys who are hopefully going to be your starters in year two and three. That's a really interesting counterfactual. I don't know that it could have moved the needle that much. I think the class would have been certainly better, but I don't know if, if marginally better would have a real meaning for the program. Potentially, though. Yeah, no, no. It's not enough time, and thanks for the timeline here. You know, obviously, Billy would have been Florida's coach November 28th, essentially. Signing day was the 21st. It's three weeks of time. You can do something with that window, but I think one of the harder things about being Florida, and this is maybe not often talked about, is if you're a kid that is good enough to go to Florida, you're good enough to go to all the schools that are currently better than Florida, and within three weeks, can you convince that guy to leave that school and come to you because you're going to offer immediate playing time when you're a big unknown. That's a big, that's a big sell. So maybe you get one or two more guys, but I don't think that's enough to really alter the landscape of anything personally. All right. Brad Wilson asks two part question. How important do you see the transfer portal being in terms of providing starters and or depth? I think the better you are recruiting, like if you're Georgia, you're taking like very minimal like you're taking, you're cherry picking two to five guys every year. Um, you know, like TCU famously like flipped their whole roster, and you're seeing what some crazy shenanigans Deion Sanders pulling out in Colorado. I think the best recruiting teams will use it very, like in a very small way, and the further you slide down, that probably the more important it is to you. Um. Yeah, I don't I think it's always going to be important because if you're not using that as a a place to acquire talent, you're missing out. But if you're using it to really bolster your team, that means you're probably in roster trouble. That's exactly right. A couple of uh, historical analogies here. If you were the Roman army and your army was was built internally with Roman citizens that entered the program and you taught them how to fight and you spent time together, lived in your community, your army is as good as it can be towards the end when you're hiring mercenaries from everywhere just to go fight wars and slapping them together. It is not, that is not a long-term strategy. So it's always better to recruit and have your own culture being built. Same thing with companies. You see it all the time. Like you need to have talent development is your primary driver. And that's why you see guys like Kirby, Nick Saban, Dabo so adamant about their culture and their ability to retain and develop talent is a better result. But 
it does allow you to do what TCU did. I think theoretically it allows you to, to plug those gaps in your roster a little more quickly. It also allows you to lose your roster faster too. Mm-hmm. Double-edged sword. All right, the B, the B question to this is, how would you grade the Gators' transfer portal activity this offseason relative to our needs and, of course, also compared to the programs we complete with? I'd say a B. So it's it's not very splashy because we loaded up on offensive linemen and linebackers plus Graham Mertz, most notably. I think the offensive line is a chance to really salvage our season. The linebackers are maybe just guys that could pr- be better, but we we had to bring that in. I was underwhelmed by some of the guys we took at linebacker. You were hoping to like maybe, you know, pull in some uh, better prospects, but I, I do also think we, you know, we had a very potentially plus uh, additions at defensive line. So I think a B. I think people were underwhelmed by it, but I think it was very solid. It wasn't like this is the best we can do, but I think it's an underrated job by them. Yeah, uh, C feels right to me, but also, you know, that could turn into an A if these guys hit, and it could turn into an F if they all miss. True. Um, it just felt fine. Not maybe what you would have loved to have had. You Also, who are we going to land? I think that's tricky. I would have <laughs> I would have given anything to have landed like a, a tight end of any significance. It's true. Um, that would have moved my grade up significantly because I think that is, for reasons we talked about, a major problem with this roster. Uh, but you know, we did address a lot of needs we had, especially depth wise. So that was smart. I think with, with regards to roster stuff compared to other programs, it's kind of all over the place, depending on what they're doing as to how you grade their transfers. But it felt like it was just an average move, which is disappointing. I think. So I don't think we hit on most of the top guys in the portal. And again, that's, that's like, that's tough because you're looking at these rankings. Some of it is, they're probably good rankings. I don't think the transfer rankings are necessarily the best currently, and so you're not seeing like, oh, we're picking off like, here's the top 25 transfers and we got a lot of them, right? We didn't pull any stars in, but I think we, we had meaningful contributors and we plugged huge needs. Yeah. Maybe. So that's why I would give it a B. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So somewhere in like the average, maybe above average category, depending on you look at it. All right. Let's transition to future, Alan. All right. Jake D's again. So with Lagway, hopefully coming in 2024, when do you hold Napier accountable slash expect a successful season? I'm using the 2025 season as the year we need a national championship appearance, not necessarily a win. That's high stakes there. And lastly, with the playoff expansion, how do you adjust the three-year test, if at all? Yeah, that's a great question, set of questions there, Jake. And shout out to you from the Florida Wealth Management Club, where you noted I once lectured to you many moons ago. Uh, Good times, for sure, always being on campus. These are good questions. You heard me say earlier, I think, the three-year test still matters to me. It has not been amended yet. We'll look into it as we get more NIL data. Uh, I do think this is probably going to turn into a four-year job, which we talked about. I think we probably will have to give Napier one more year, uh, assuming year three goes well. Right now, I, I expect year two to be a, a train wreck, hopefully with with some more consistent football play, but not a good record. And then year three has got to be a corner-turning year, and year four has got to be it. Um, I'm on your timeline there. I, you can't really justify much past that. That's too long of a of a run given a three year test. So playoff expansion will be interesting. How do you adjust for it? I'm tempted to say that you don't yet. I still think that line of being right around those top four teams or winning your conference is a very important one. Uh, the wild card stuff, I think, is just going to leave teams in the wild card slot per se. 
So if you, you know, if you now win, let's say that you enter the playoff and you win a couple of games, but your record was one loss, that still counts too. So I think you need to get to what's going to become the semifinals or win your conference to pass your test or exceed your baseline. Those are things we talked about. I don't see myself leaving the playoffs itself as the barometer. It was always a top four kind of metric. You had to do one of those two things. So I'm going to say that I don't plan on altering it, but of course we're going to look at the data and if stuff reveals itself that, hey, the new cutoff line is here, we'll cut it off there. So I do think if you're Billy Napier, you're really hoping that you can maintain the momentum that you, I think you're right about the 2025 season being your blockbuster season. Now you would like it earlier. Things have gone differently. You had different roster available to you. I do think you could have gotten there in year three. Um, but with the current quarterback situation, the way the roster is stacked, I think you're, you are looking at that 2025 season. Can he hold on long enough to get there with enough momentum that I, that actually is a shot for him? Um, it feels like, you know, who knows things can change, but year three should be appreciably better. If year three is not appreciably better, then he's probably going to limp into year four and that's not going to be what you want it to be. That's exactly correct. All right, J.D. Hutchinson, since all the hot seat talk seems to be inversely proportional to proximity to the program. I think it means people far away think he's on the hot seat. People close to the program don't think that at all. Exactly right. And you've actually talked to Coach Napier, which we have, but we did. Oh, also, we didn't mention this. We had exactly zero seconds with Coach Napier off the air that mattered. We spent like two minutes of ice breaking. Right. So people ask that question. Do we get to ask anything off the air? Like we typically would, like when Scott's here, we'll hang out for 30 minutes to talk about stuff. No, we had none of that. So there was actually no conversation about anything off the air. I'm glad that just came up. How would you evaluate his progress towards the, uh, the three-year test? And we just kind of talked about a second part here, Alan, where he asked, are we reevaluating it? Well, we're always reevaluating it to see what the baseline is, but nothing formal announced yet. But we talked about this too at the end of the year, but let's just retouch on it. How do you feel about Napier's his progress progress towards? So the I think test? if this recruiting class does what it's supposed to, he missed it a little bit with the bump class, but I think you could easily transfer that window, like in your mind, to this next one. This next one has to be just top notch up there with some of the best. Uh, Georgia and Alabama are doing stupid things. So if you're just a touch below them, I think that that would be where you would want to be. That would be reasonable. Um, and this is going to be hard because I think year three is not going to be what you want to be outside, like I just said. So I think you're going to have to move the time window if you if you think. Again, the three-year test is not like, as you said, absolute. There can be some other factors in there, but it's generally true. So you have to look at it and say, does this apply to my situation uh, in full? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like largely been absolute, but that's not the point of the test like we talk about. Yeah. It has sort of been the way, but the reality is, how do you make an informed decision as an athletic director on who to keep, who to fire, who to give a raise to? That's what it really works for. And we've talked about buying yourself extra time from the three-year test that maybe that gives you a chance to come back around and win something later, which hasn't happened yet. You know, Harbaugh's flirted with it. Others have, hasn't happened. But I think in Napier's case, what you said is, is correct, Alan. The simplest way to look at this through line to success for him is does he continue to get better results every single year? Does the momentum behind him increase or decrease? And I do not think he can afford a decrease of momentum at all between now and the end of year four. He cannot do it. Because of the way things are, it's going to be bad year one, bad year two. Year three's got to be better and year four's got to be great. And if you have some major deviation of momentum there without that high-end result, I do not know how, if I'm Scott Strickland, 
uh, you're you're in a tough spot. I mean, that's a lot of data. Four years of data backs. I mean, it just, it's not going to be good. No one has done that and been successful. So we'll keep reevaluating that. But I think right now things are there's cautious optimism that we can get there. There's things to like, but the stuff on the football field has not been super promising. So this year will be important. I think even if we have a losing record to see some style improvements. And like we talked about year three and four are going to be a pressure cooker for Napier. Uh, and we'll see what happens. All right. Jeremy Rutland mentions the media tone around the program has felt very negative this season from Stuart Mandel picking that we finished last in the division, just generally being an afterthought and an all, all SEC centric media coverage. What should we be excited about this year as fans? Should I put some stock in Billy saying on your show, he thinks we'll be better. Could we be a su- pleasant surprise and win at games? I'm just ready for the tone to improve and be excited about Florida football again. Um, this is tough. I think, especially if you're like us and you're not a total recruiting nut, um, if you're just looking at on the field stuff, it, there's probably not a lot of stuff that you look at, but I'm so excited about this. Um, I do think Florida could win a game, eight games next year. We're going to get to like the floor of that. I think that's entirely possible. There's enough talent on this roster. And if there's a big improvement on the defense, certainly this team can get to eight wins that, if that feels like it's not a possibility, then they should just maybe close shop. Um, I don't know that will happen, but it's certainly a possibility. And I think if that happens, I think, and the team is playing well and the defense is improved and they're in every game, I think you'll feel better about the team. Ugh, I'm going to say that you. it's best not to be excited about this year. And this is going to come from a lifelong baseball player and baseball fan. By the way, go O's. Baltimore having a great start to the year this year. Let's go. Um you know, when you know your team's in the midst of a rebuild as a baseball fan, I often default to watching the box score, following the farm system, seeing what talent we're getting, and I just check out on the the record because who cares? You know this is not the year. In college football at Florida, we hate doing that because we feel like we should never have to rebuild. And I agree with that. That's what the podcast covers. But we are, let's be real, in the midst of a rebuild right now. And I think, therefore, as a fan, you have to change your vibe from this season to the ones we've talked about, the next two after it which means you want to see how your younger guys are developing. What guys are you recruiting? What's your farm system look like? What is your coach doing that gives you reason to believe he can get stuff done? That's what I'm going to be watching. If you get to eight games and your talent development looks good, your young guys look like they're emerging, you can be excited about what's going to happen with the next season, right? And that's actually exactly what happened to reference the Baltimore Orioles. They had a tremendous second half of the season last year with their young talent coming through. And now this season, they're off to one of the best starts in in Major League Baseball. So, you're looking for that changing of the guard. That's what you're looking for. And so hopefully at the end of the year, this football team is playing better. And there's a reason to go into year three being excited. I think that's what my excitement would be. But I think if you're going to get hyped up thinking, hey, we're going to win something this year, we're going to knock off some top teams, that'd be great. But perhaps you're going to set yourself up for some emotional letdown and more frustration than you need to have. I think it's wise to build this year's view it as what it is. I mean, it just is a rebuilding year. And I think we all want to be, you know, back to not having to view things as rebuilding years, but it is it is where we are right now. And BVSIIC basically asks us, should we take this season with a grain of salt and really start judging the team once Billy gets one of his recruits in? I think if you're looking at it that way, I don't, I don't think there's a problem with that. Like, not a grain of salt. <laughs> That's too little. But not putting all your weight on it, as you said, that it's a rebuild. Yeah, I mean, basically imagine that we have bought this old house, and the foundation is there and nothing else is there that you want to keep. 
So, you know, right now I've got some walls up and you're having a hard time seeing your, if your vision is going to be realized. And this year we might get a few more things done, but you still show up to the house and think, man, I don't know, this is not looking promising, right? And so I think if you view that as that, you're okay. And then you say, all right, you're three and four. I need to see this thing come together. Uh, so that's that I think is crucial. All right, let me go down to Jeremiah Coker's question. First, he wants to know your favorite restaurant in Gainesville. Can I guess it? Yeah, we've talked about this before. Dragonfly, yes. Yeah, uh, okay. that is that is my favorite sushi place in Gainesville. Uh, the top is what I give as the answer because I take most of my new friends that come into Gainesville there because it's the most Gainesville like. Okay, it's eclectic. It's funky. I love the triple cheeseburger there. It's one of my favorite burgers with the three types of cheeses they have. Uh, Dragonfly is my favorite sushi. I could go on forever. I love food. But what's your favorite restaurant in Gainesville? I mean, I think it's it's probably Satchel's. That's a great spot. Yeah. So are you, now you're burger. you a regular Satchel's pizza guy? Or you deep dish like our good friend Josh? Dude? I mean, I'll, you know, I am a fan of both. I'm not exclusive deep disher like some. Okay. You like both. And the okay. salad, salad, of course, is. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. All right. With Coach Nape. As he calls him this question, being a big program and culture guy, feels like we could see a big jump in year two, i.e. physicality, execution. How how far do you think the jump, the year two jump could take us in regards to the on-field results? And then contrasting this, I'm going to pull all this together, Joshua Birch and Daniel Daniel Dude Nurse, is that? Daniel, period, Dude, Dude Nurse, nurse period. Like uh <laughs> They are asking, what are the odds of us having a six-win season, essentially? Um, so we're going to talk about the top and the bottom here. Um, I The top for me, like how big the jump, if you want to go most optimistic, I think eight, nine wins is possible. Like I just said, eight wins is very possible. Nine is pushing it with our really difficult schedule. But I think it's there. I this team could have been an eight-win team last year. I don't know that it's going to be worse. Should have been an eight-win team. Last should year. have been an eight-win really team. Really should have been. Yeah. You're right. Um, and so I think that's very, very fair. Again, if you're Napier and you see better execution, better coaching, better development, more buy-in, then that could translate into wins on the field. Yeah, if you get the highest possible variance where all the bounces go your way, you win a bunch of close games at the end, you can get to nine. Realistically, though, Vegas has it at five and a half. Eight, I think, is the realistic, like, you know, high confidence interval upside. Eight. And then below six, I know a lot of people think that's impossible. I don't think it's impossible because I think we're we're tenuously hanging with half of a roster, perhaps that's bought in still. A lot of stuff can go wrong. Um, a lot of stuff can go wrong. You can imagine the scenarios where stuff can go wrong. Uh, you know, it it feels like I'm prepared for six and six. That's what we talked about. I'm that's where I am. I'm at the six mark. I'm right with Vegas. So that feels like the where we'll land the most. But I can see plenty of scenarios where we get to seven or eight, and I can see some scenarios where we get to four or five. That's fewer yeah. for me. That's the pie for me this year. Fewer four and five, a lot of six and six, and then a good amount of seven and eight is is definitely a, a possible but smaller. So David Wonderlich wrote an article recently using like if you want to use projections on points per game, offense and defense as a metric for predicting win totals. I think he makes a fairly strong case that like getting below five would be tough, right? So you're looking at some improvement from the defense and maybe not much regression from the offense and where that would lead you. And so six is certainly possible. 
I think you, the way you split up that pie was, you know, fairly compelling. Um, so is six wins acceptable? I guess is the, the other side of that is like, if we go six and six again, does the temperature so hot that things start to like peel apart? Um, I, I, th- I think it's very possible. I think if you're Napier, you start pushing buttons to try to avoid that. I don't know what those buttons are, but you, you that's bad. Six is bad, even though it's actually pretty likely. I think you want to try to avoid that scenario. Oh, you definitely want to avoid it for sure. All right. Abe Hamza says, how long before we can compete for the SEC title realistically in our opinion? We've kind of answered this already. But so the SEC title is interesting because that's not just like no success. Right. Can you didn't say win. He says compete for. Compete for, I think, in four years. Yeah, I think the fourth year. Yeah. All right. What about win? Depends. Let's say Georgia stays on the same trajectory. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the the fourth year roster is still a little young, and the fifth the fifth year is again. So if it works, it's a stepping stone momentum, positive, positive, positive. Year four breakout year, year five, your expectations probably are to compete with Georgia and Alabama, like well, literally to compete with them. If this is done correctly, that's what has to happen. Otherwise, right. you're you're never going to catch them. Right. So I think in year five, year four, if you have the right quarterback, your roster should be within range of them, right? Hundred percent. You should be close enough that you could beat them, right? Because you you can only play so many guys at a time, Correct. right? And if your best guys are as close to their best guys, again, you might take a dip where they don't take a dip, right? But you should you should yep. be competing with them. Yep. Um, I love this one. You want to read it next? Yeah, Hater Radio asks, "Are you guys buying the FSU hype?" So, as a playoff team. I would say potentially yes. As an actual national title contender, I'd say no. Uh, Florida should have beat this team last year, probably. I mean, they this team is was is good. They got an incredible game out of Jordan Travis last year against Florida, and Florida also defended him stupidly, right? So, I, I don't think they're there to beat the top teams. Now they play in a what I think will be a fairly easy ACC and Clemson's still a question mark. So they could make the playoff, you know, purely based on winning the ACC. So I think that that has to be taken into account, but um, I'm not buying the t- the hype on them as like a top tier program yet. No, I don't buy the hype at all. I mean, they're not recruiting at the right level. You know, the three year They are test. hitting the transfer portal pretty hard. Though. Yeah. But that, like we talked about, right. We just talked about that. The Roman army, like that only lasts for so long. Nothing about them to me suggests that their ceiling is, is playoff like caliber, wi- like winning, competing. They can enter the playoff because you come from the ACC. That is not the same as actually being a, a real contender. I just don't buy it. And I actually like Mike Norvell. I talked about the fact that I thought that hire was was a fine one at the time. I didn't love it, but it was fine. I think he's a good football coach, good offensive coach. I think he fits the state in a way that works offensively. But I don't see enough talent-wise from them. I just don't see enough talent-wise from them. It's, it's simple, Alan. I think if you gave him more talent, I might feel very differently. But right now, if they maintain the talent level they're kind of maintaining, I, I they do not cause me to buy the hype. All right, we have an unknown question because I could not figure out who asked it despite the fact that I put it on here, and I am sorry. So write to me that this was your question, and I'll give you some love on our next step. Uh, which drafted UF player this year landed in a place that best matches the team's needs with the player's proven abilities? This is a, a question I'm probably not perfectly qualified to answer for some of these guys. We're going to do it anyway, Alan, so let's walk through it. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Richardson, we haven't really talked about this, have we? 
Not particularly in depth, no. I love this fit with the Colts. I think they're higher Shane Steichen, who I have question marks, you know, about him as a coach because he hasn't done it before. But in terms of his fit with what they did with Jalen Hurts, and again, I think Richardson has a chance to be a much better player than Jalen Hurts. Um, but the the path they took him on to being, you know, excellent NFL player. You know, again, I think he's probably a little overrated at this point, but I think Richardson could be successful in that system. Again, you talked about quarterback and fit. I think this could be great for him. And, you know, at four for the Colts, to not have to give him any draft capital to get him there, I thought that was a big win for everybody. Yeah, right fit. You said it best for sure. Well, man, I have tremendous concerns with them basically sort of just pseudo acknowledging he's probably going to be the guy. Yep. And that I don't like for all the things we talked about. The guy's played 13, 13 football games in college. Half of those don't even really count. Straight into the NFL on a team that's, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't like that. I wanted to sit here and learn. That feels bad. But, yeah, scheme-wise, it's a, it's a grand slam. I, he could not have picked a better spot given that you mentioned it well. Jalen Hurts is, is not as talented as Richardson. I think Jalen Hurts might have a totally, not might, 100% has a different mental makeup than Richardson does. So we'll see how Richardson handles this. But I don't love the situation as a possible day one starter in the league with his inexperience. I don't love it. But again, he's with the right guy to hopefully simplify Right, and you know, they said that there, but they don't have to live that out. They don't. And again, he's with the right guy who I think will simplify things to where they can maybe take a Justin Fields approach in a very different way, but you can protect him from fearing like he's well, if you're, ruining. If your kid gloves him like Justin Fields, he's passing eight times a game. I don't, I don't, I don't mean that sure way, that. but I mean like like Justin Fields seemingly hasn't lost confidence somehow, despite the fact that he doesn't throw the ball ever. You know, like I think if you can protect his confidence and let him learn, there's a line you can do that. It's okay. All right, next one up. Yeah, these next two, I think were great fits for them. Uh, Jervon Dexter to the Bears. They have a huge new defensive tackle. That's probably about where he should have gone at 53. I mean, Osiris Torrance, 59th to the Buffalo Bills. I think he slid because of some some physical, some medicals, a little bit of concerns there for him. Um, I think this was great. Like a perfect match of player and system. They're going to be able to plug him in right away potentially. Or if not, if the if you know he's going to be a guy who grows into a starting role really quickly. Um and that if he turns out to be healthy and can play, I think that was a steal for them at 59. Yeah. I love, I love where Torrance wound up. I think he's got to be really frustrated how far he slid given the grades people had on him. Weight was always a concern. Physical condition was always a concern with him. Winding up on one of the best teams in the AFC for, for a line that I think fits him where he could, you know, make an impact right away that pick I think is good and then for Dexter of course there's just question marks as to whether he can be as productive as I think on film I think again when he got one-on-ones he he displayed that that's why I think he largely got taken 53rd despite the fact that he didn't really do a lot objectively I think people on film saw they just doubled him every single play so it's a good fit I think for him also on a team where it's not having to necessarily go nuts right away he gets a year to probably figure stuff out so that's good too all right let's go down Jaguars took Vinchel Miller in the fourth round, which I think surprised everybody for how high they took him. Shocking to me, yeah. Especially with the Jaguars situation at linebacker. I mean, it seemed like they're basically bringing him in to play special teams. I didn't love this for my Jags or for Ventrell. I don't know if I, what situation would be great for Ventrell, but I mean, I, I was going to say, for me, this is glorious for Ventrell Miller because yeah. I don't see him. I, I hope I'm really wrong because the guy's been a career gator, but 
I don't I don't see him being an every down NFL linebacker. And so to be taken in the fourth round is really high. And good for him. He'll make money because of that. And he's, he'll have some longevity possibly, but I don't like it. Well, just for him making the roster, I think it. I don't know if he won. That's 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 what I'm saying. That's fourth why fourth round pick on the guy who is yeah. a questionable make on your roster is no. That's why I think it's great for him though. Is it's like yeah. it gives you a much better chance to make a roster if you're taken in the fourth round that's than if you take. So for him, it's it's probably as good as it could be. But yeah, it's it's definitely bizarre. All right, Justin Shorter goes to the Bills. I th- again, I think this is great for him. He's Home a guy run for him here. who can Home stretch run. the field. Big guy. This is a guy that kind of guy they like there um i think it's a decent value for them i if i were somebody taking justin short i'd rather take him in the sixth or seventh but um i think it's a good fit for him for sure i think it's a great fit for him because as we talked about he is a super plus blocker and he's never going to be a guy in the nfl who's going to run past you vertically he's a possession guy so you can take a guy you can put him in you know let's say he only makes it to be like a 15 20 snap a guy game guy but he can block really well and he can run underneath routes and he's huge and he's shown he can play special he's very willing to play he special is teams. and he will play special teams so i think to me I, I love that pick especially with the style that you have a guy who can escape the pocket and run obviously uh he can throw to a post-up guy underneath intermediate mm-hmm. i think it's a really good fit for him i think it's a great landing spot if he can make it in the nfl this spot i think will help him and then a the guy who this is great for him to get drafted. Amari Bernie, sixth round to the Raiders. I'm not sure I would have had a draftable grade on him, but if you have a very specific plan for him, again, I think if you could think of him as a special teams ace, he could be a guy who could do that for you. And if you need one of those guys, cheap guys on your roster, but imagine him actually playing NFL snaps, the linebacker feels like a big stretch. Yeah, no way. But again, this is a guy who was just, he's so athletic, right? And we've talked about it. He was like the king of the tweeners that Florida had. Doesn't really fit anything. And I think to your point, I think they're looking at him as a special teamers guy. You can get a four-year guy in the sixth round, valuable special teams guy. He That that works. That's worth it. The math works on that. And then maybe some upside to be a package guy occasionally. Cover a running back here and there, five, six games on defense. Yeah, that's probably what they're looking at him for. And that's purely, I think, because he is, again, that athletic. Right. So in the sixth and seventh round, just like are you taking huge swings on guys who are either going to – be major contributors or not make your roster or are you cherry picking? Like this is a guy we have, see a very specific place for him. We have a need for this type of person on our roster. So I don't know. Um, it wouldn't be my draft strategy in my fantasy leagues. I love the absolute swing for the fences in the late rounds and mm-hmm. try to take all risk, all reward. Um, but hey, however, great for him again, drafted. Yeah. Great. Fit. Congrats. Congrats to all those guys. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Ben Coppinger asks, can we do a film breakdown of some iconic Gator plays, uh, some Danny Warfel passes, some Rex throws, Tebow plays, et cetera? What do you think? You want to do that? I have plans to do this. I keep saying I'm going to do it. And this summer, Ben, you might just get it because I have no extensive travel plans, which means that maybe some of this free time will go in towards doing the film review. Potentially. I'd love to see. Just even a short run, man. Yeah, no, yeah, short, for sure. I'll pick some stuff and get it done. Um, If the film review was easier to do, I would do more of them. It does take a lot of time, but they are fun. So good question. Jeremy B, quick take. Projections on UF baseball's team. College World Series postseason run. Heating up this weekend. Yeah, man, I wish I'd seen more of the team this year. They're obviously mashing the ball. College baseball feels just like an insane thing to pick or to assign any kind of probability value to what they might do. But they'd certainly have a chance if they continue to hit the rate they've been hitting and they get some 
you know, wins from their bullpen in terms of like, you know, the, the guys coming through in those spots. If they can get some decent relief pitching, this team can certainly go all the way. I, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, but they're certainly in the mix. Yeah, it, it, you know, baseball almost always comes down to pitching. With this team, it's 100% comes down to pitching. And these are one-game scenarios. So I right. do think Florida's team, oddly enough, is very dangerous in a one-game scenario because they can score a ton of runs and they could just put you out of it. Uh, whereas if you're playing a series, your back-end pitching issues probably get you. They also might get you in the one game setting, but oddly enough, I think the one game setting may help them. So I think they could. I think they could make some noise. I also think they could lose early because of what we yeah, just talked they're, about. They're very high variance, super high variance. But look, they got a ton of top end talent. This team is really good in a lot of ways. So I hope. I hope they get it done uh, for sure. You know why not? Like I said, I'm just going to say they get it done because who cares? It's baseball, and let's hope it happens. Uh, all right, man, this one's great. I can't wait to ask you this one, <laughs> Tyler. Great question. Thank you for this. He says, "What is our favorite?" You can see this on Twitter if you want to see the graphics, but I'm going to walk Alan through it. Which logo is best, Alan? And I want you to actually rank from your worst to your first. Okay. And there's six of them. So once you tell people what. So I'm going to describe are. each one. Okay. All right. So the first logo is the Fighting Albert, the classic Fighting Albert that was in play from 1980 to 94, the one that you see on the retro type stuff. Number two is the Block F, which used to be on the center of UF's football field from 94 to 2006, and it was kind of the orange Block F that a lot of you have seen if you're from that era. We have the Fast F, uh, number three, which is the one you currently see, 2011 till today. Number four, which I like to call the 70s UF logo, even though it really was more, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, The, you know, State of Florida on the bottom, Gator on top, orange up top, blue on the bottom. You guys have seen this before. Number five, the very famous Gator head, which we are all used to now, 2011 to present. And then number six, the maybe not as appreciated, but still there sort of update to Fighting Albert, kind of the the 90s looking Gator. A little more aggressive. A little more aggressive, a little more broad into modern times. All right, so let's go worst to first for you. Okay, number six, last place, the Fast F. Okay, I'm going to say right away, agree. I hate that thing you guys have all me talk about. I hate it. I hate Uh, it. It's disgusting. <laughs> the next one, I'll, I'll say the modern Albert. We'll yeah. Check number Which five is for me. fine, but not notable. Right. I'm, I'm there with you uh, as well. Then I'm going to go at the third spot, the block F. Okay. Um, and then I'm going to go Gatorhead. At okay. Three. Okay. okay. Old, old school Albert at number two. Okay. And number one, I love this. I have a sticker of this on the back of my truck. The Pell logo from the 70s. It's glorious. I love it. It's very funky. Okay, I so, mean, again, I don't know if you want to use that as your primary no, logo. but that's okay. But there's I love no, it. There's no rhyme or reason. Is that which it. one do you like? All right, so for me, I share, obviously, the Block F. is just horrific, which I already said. You mean the then Fast I sh- F? I mean the Fast F, sorry. The Fast F. I'm looking at the Block F because I just love it. But the Fast F train wreck, I hate it. I've always hated it. Get rid of it. Please make it stop. I can't stand it. And then Modern, as we said, the Modern uh, Fighting Gator. Then for me, it is your favorite, what I call the 70s Steez. But uh, that one's going to be number four for me. Number three for me is uh, is going to be the Block F. I love it. It's not like super brandable, but I just love it. And it it's cool. right in its right place. It's great. And then number two for me is uh, is going to be the Fighting Albert. I love Fighting Albert. It's pretty great. Uh, old school. And number one is the Gator. I actually think the Gatorhead is a world class logo. That's good. I mean, we see it so much, and it's there. And the Gatorhead paired with the Block F is the greatest of all things that existed. But unfortunately, they had to write the script, and I hate it. So it pisses me off. But regardless, I do think the Gatorhead is an incredibly notable 
great logo that's maybe oversaturated people don't number one but that's that's it for me but i love this question and universally what matters is alan and i both panned the fast f so if you love the fast f you are wrong is the is the bottom line man you look at the baseball stuff that our baseball uniforms are always so clean and yes. good yes um i mean the gator script is iconic yep like there's so many good variations of this that don't include like the fast F stuff. Yeah. We're not Cal state full. I mean, it, it, it drives me crazy. You just look at our hats. And if you don't know people like, is that Cal state? Is that, who is that? Yeah. Well, that's ridiculous. All right. Rob Monda asked this question directly to you. <laughs> hey, Alan, I wanted to ask a question for the mail mailbag. Will the pod be releasing a t-shirt or any other merch this year? He's definitely going to buy the shirt. If we sell one, he thinks the GNFP is the official pod of Gator nation. And he uh, congrats us on having Strickland and Napier as guests. Well, thanks, Rob. It's very nice of you. Yes. Uh, this is funny that you're asking me this because this is definitely James's department. So James will let you answer it. Well, that's nice. Good deferral. Uh, the answer is, after much aplomb, we talked all about this last year, there will, in fact, be merch. We actually have a new logo, which we will de- be debuting very, very soon. We already have it done. It's ready to roll as well as the merch. So look for that probably in early July. You'll be able to start scooping that up sometime in that time frame. We're kind of doing the final testing now on some of the stuff that will be available, but you will have much promised long awaited ever the <laughs> GNFP merch available. It will bring me great joy. I can't even wait until I'm going to the stadium and seeing anybody wearing GNFP anything. It's going to warm my heart like 50 levels. It's going to be amazing. All right. And lastly, Alan, this is a big one here. Getting Wiser asks us, will there be a GNFP meetup this season? Hopefully, yes. We were just before just before we recorded, we were debating the merits of various possibilities. But I think we do want to do something again this year. Last year was super fun. We do. So I'm going to put the things on the docket. And you can opine to us, write to us, tweet at us, social media us, Patreon us, whatever you want. Just find a way to get in touch with us. We are considering two things possibly combining them one will be a live pod event on a friday night i'm just going to hypothetically throw a game out there this is not real yet let's say tennessee weekend uh friday night we have a pod live event somewhere in gainesville hour long live show like that yeah live show right we're going to do something you'll be there and then we'll hang out and then on saturday we will host a tailgate but there's a catch to this one if you as an esteemed listener of the gator nation full podcast have a great tailgate spot where you can host a hundred of your friends from the gnfp we would love that because the cost to actually do a catered tailgate is just way too expensive. And our goal for these meetups is to not prohibit anyone cost-wise. So if we could secure a spot where we could then provide on our own, you know, the catering, some burgers, dogs, et cetera, but then people could just show up and give like a five buck donation or something to cover the costs. That would be interesting. So we're kind of leaning towards open tailgate. We do need a spot for that. That'd be great. And then also a pod live event, which would be on Friday. It could be a whole weekend of goodness, or it could be nothing if we can't figure it out. But yeah, that's so kind of what we're leaning towards. you prefer towards. a live show or maybe a tailgate. Or both. If you're really like all in the both camp, let us know too. We want to do this stuff primarily, obviously, for you guys. If you find it interesting, if no one finds it interesting, then we won't do it. But regardless, that is on the docket. So big stuff there with merch and meetups. Stay tuned for more information. Potentially, we will have a June episode. I'm not going to commit to it yet. If things work out, we'll have one. If not... Then we're looking more towards a July SEC Media Days scenario, but you could get another bonus June episode. So just make sure that you are subscribed uh, wherever you get your podcast. All right, Alan, anything else to add from your end? 
I think we covered it all. That was fun. What a great mailbag. Thanks so much for your questions, the time it takes for you to write them. Hopefully you enjoyed our answers. As always, we tried to give you a megasode with this May mailbag clocking in over two hours here. So thanks for listening all the way here until the end. And hopefully we'll be back with you very soon. Until then, enjoy an excellent start to your summer.